1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Podcast like it.
3: Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's night.
2: It's just podcast like it.
3: Podcast like it's 1999. 99. Podcast like it. You it's a podcast like it's 1999.
2: Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from a window seat and coach here in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart.
0: And I'm Philisco.
2: and with us today is David Sims. He's a staff writer. There he is. <laughs> Sorry, person <laughs> in. No, 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 no. Good, it's good. We're, we're so happy you're here. He also host the Blank Chat podcast, our favorite podcast. Um, but we tell every podcaster they're our favorite.
0: So <laughs> you're
2: re- you really are our favorite, uh, well, as, you, you. as you know. So uh, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been a while
0: it has it's uh, a and, and for a significantly better movie than mystery men so that is uh, uh yeah that's true <laughs> i mean yeah
3: I, I mean yeah i don't know like i wanted mystery men to be the best and i remember being a little disappointed but you know whatever i don't want to i don't want to bag on mystery men
0: Kenny and I are convinced that Mystery Men will be a television series on some streaming platform in less than five years.
3: Yeah. That seems very plausible, isn't yeah. it? Based, it was based on a comic, some yeah. like little comic, right? So someone yeah. owns that. It's just who owns that, <laughs> right? Like yeah. someone.
2: But we very 100%. clearly abandoned the idea of being the
0: writers of said said miniseries.
2: So. <laughs> yeah, Shouldn't it's true. We're, it.
0: we're not interested in doing it. We're I just saying know. someone's going to do it. <laughs> you want it? No, no,
2: no. You take it. No, no. We'll let we'll, we'll <laughs> someone else take this. One.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, so, David, did you see this film in '99? Did you see the Limey in '99? Definitely not.
3: I. Oh. Because I would have been 13 when this movie came out um i'm trying to think of the first soderberg i would have seen in theaters i guess no well yeah no i guess it was aaron brockovich it was the next year but Mm -hmm. i'm pretty sure this movie i grew up in britain (laughs) we're not we're not gonna do the bit all right okay thank you uh and i'm pretty sure this movie was rated like 18 in britain even though it's not it is it was yeah and even though it's not I mean, it has some gun violence on it. You know, there's blood, but it's not that bad. It's so really I'm not, not sure how it earned that uh, rating. But So it would have been impossible for me to see in theaters. So I feel like I caught it a few, a couple years later, you know, probably when I was a teenager and I was becoming aware, like, okay, Soderbergh, like, this is a guy to check out.
2: Because um, I a certainly
3: guy. saw, yeah, I saw Brockovich, Traffic, Oceans 11, Solaris, Ocean, you know, I saw all of those in theaters.
2: Um, just for our, our, our audience who are a bunch of dumb Americans, I obviously know the answers to these questions, but, uh, what do, what do most R rated movies translate to in Britain? It's a 15 and an 18. Is that right? Fif,
3: 15 and 18 are the two. And like fifth, usually to get in like Britain, basically if your movie has like bad language and sex, it's going to be a 15 unless I guess the sex was like truly, you know, very explicit. Uh, and so you only really get an 18 if you're violent like you know it's very violent movies that get an 18 rating uh and that means to be clear it's not like an r rating in america where you uh you can go if your parent brings you or whatever like you, you you have to be over 18 to see an 18 rated movie so i guess it i mean is there like sexual violence would often get like an automatic 18 but i don't know that this this technically really it has some You know, some violence against women, but like, you know, I I don't think of this as like
2: a truly harrowing movie. It must be the depiction of like a real Cockney Brit that they didn't want a bunch of people to even know that they existed (laughs) in England, I'm guessing. Yeah. 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 That's That's a good point. Maybe maybe it was
3: just like, we cannot promote Cockney violence.
2: Maybe it was was Lem Dobbs being like too much rhyming slang, and I do not want that. (laughs) upon the i youth mean of
0: he, lem is is very vocal about his dislike of that on the commentary track. let me tell you it is right amazing. um yeah, so no, so
3: yeah, why? did you guys see this in theaters? do you remember
0: i I definitely saw it in theaters in ninety nine hmm. I don't know if you did, Kenny
2: I know when I saw it the first time it was in uh two thousand uh in like this is a movie that my friends would sit around and watch late at night because we were you know we, we loved violence. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) so this was a movie I watched in my house. I lived in a house with eight guys and we watched this quite a bit, uh, in 2000, 2001.
0: So David, I have a question for you since, as we know, you grew up in England. Uh, do you know what, why, uh, the limey that, that, what that means or how that came to be?
3: Why why Brits are called limeys or why this is called the limey? Uh, Because, because, because of the boats, right? Because of, uh, uh, Scurvy, yeah, yeah. the boats had um, citrus, so that right, yes. so they could avoid scurvy. That's the that's yeah. the thinking, right?
0: What I love is that it's an American slang for Brits.
3: Yes, what it was. was it was a, yeah. the best Americans could do in terms of like <laughs> inventing a slur for Brits. It's a little, you know, weak sauce. I mean, I like it. I think now it has become it's a bent, slur, like yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I guess slurs, slur, yeah the Brits call Americans like Yanks, right? Or things like that, okay. you know, like those are the, but like Limey just kind of sounds cute. And especially in this movie, <laughs> yeah. it it feels very appropriate because it's like all these Americans are like this, this sort of cartoon Englishman is like, you know, sort of fucking up our stuff. Like, you know, he's kind of like barging around.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: And so like, I he know. is such a, he is right. He's yeah. a proper Limey, I guess. I love it. It's, yeah, it's like know. an old nautical thing though. Yeah. Like, it, it, I, I, I don't know. It's a great – it's I, a good term.
2: I, yeah. I do remember looking it up at the time and seeing that it, it it really is not a nice thing to say to or about a Brit. So I thought sure. that was kind of bold in its own way. But um, yeah, I love that idea that that this limey comes to <laughs> into L.A. Any, no one calls him the limey. No one no. calls
3: him a limey. Uh, every, but everyone is kind of baffled by him. The, well, they're the, all the, thinking The juxtaposition. It, you know? Right. Yeah is funny because he is everyone else in this movie is such an LA character. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, Barry Newman or Peter Fonder or Louis Guzman or like uh, Nikki cat. These are all like, I feel like they all feel like types out of like an mm-hmm. LA noir movie. And totally. he's just, he it's like, he's coming in from a different movie. I, this is such a good movie. And I don't, it wasn't, it's, I don't think it was underrated at the time. I know it didn't do well, but yeah. it's, not, it's not that surprising that it didn't do well. It's not like a, a really accessible film. Yeah. But it was definitely well-received, right? Yeah, very well-received. I mean, I feel like
0: it's it, 92% on Rotten Tomatoes.
3: Right. And yeah, I do feel like it's a little underrated. I think partly because Soderbergh really explodes. His sort of comeback explodes right after. And people forget to sort of loop this in with that, even though this is definitely a part True. of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe that's why.
0: Well, I, I feel like... It, you know, Obviously, your podcast is about filmography, so I just wanted to kind of sure. focus in a little bit on this portion of Soderbergh, because it does feel like this is a, a real fulcrum point, right? Like, this is a real moment when he's got out of sight, which is a critical hit, but not yes. successful, despite the fact that everyone claims that it was. It's not. It was um, not. I mean, it wasn't and then like a disaster. To, as he said in many... Right. Yeah, go ahead.
3: Well, what did it make, what did it make like $30 or Yeah, million? yeah, yeah. It, was like, it was sort of like, all right.
2: Yeah. But it also—I mean—and it wasn't a commercial success. It's true, but it was definitely the best movie of that year. Like there, yes, yeah. Like there was—it was '98. There was something about it that felt because that's a pretty bad year in movies, um, in my opinion. So it did feel like this. And '97, I think, is a pretty good year in movies. So it did feel like um, this shining star, at least in terms of uh, large-scale American American movies with big stars in it. Right. Whereas the year before, we sure. got, you know, Boogie Nights and the Ice Storm and so many, like, you know, <laughs> movies like that, like Confidential. Um, right. Well, to talk huh?
3: 98, and you guys are 99 boys, obviously, but 98 is Here interesting because, right, it, like, the Oscar conversation that year is obviously defined by, like, Private Ryan versus Shakespeare in Love. So you've got this, like, big, you know, big Oscar Eastwood War epic versus a Miramax movie. Like, right. Like, so. That kind of defines the year. But I feel like it's the flops of 98 that are all the great ones, like Out of Sight, Last Days of Disco, Big Lebowski, Rushmore. Like, you know, Truman those are the 98. ones where it's like, yeah. right, Fear and Loathing. Mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of movies that at the time people were, were sort of underwhelming, maybe critically, maybe commercially, but mm-hmm. like, you know, grew to be sort of cult movies. And The Thin Red Line is that year.
2: It's a good movie. Thin Red, thin red <coughs> Line, and, and uh, it was a beautiful – it was – um Life is Beautiful and Elizabeth are the ones nominated. So the, right. the nominees had a real downer vibe to them. They like, did. If, if you're fighting Shakespeare in Love, I think that's really partly
3: why Shakespeare in Love is. made it. Yeah,
2: because it was the
3: upbeat movie. And there were these two really intense war movies. And then Life mm-hmm. is Beautiful was kind of, you know, that's it's a comedy, but obviously it's it just a, to be a Holocaust comedy. movie. Right.
0: It's just, it's interesting because, you know, Soderbergh talks about in interviews how. He wanted to keep that momentum off of out of sight. Like he didn't want to lose that. He felt like right. creatively and, and, and from a career perspective. Um, so he, he makes this film very quickly. They, they literally pitch it, shoot it and, and are done like nine months all in this, which is kind of insane. Um, and he watches the first cut, which is a linear cut and it doesn't right. work. And he shits a brick and he's like, oh, my God, am, you know, is this going to stall any sort of momentum that I get out of out of sight? So he obviously goes into the editing room and he creates this much more of a kind of much more esoteric kind of. It's like a uh, memory. Play. Yeah. Memory. Right, play. Right, yeah. right. And and it's interesting because I wonder, do you get Aaron Brockovich and Traffic and Ocean's Eleven without him having a come to Jesus moment with the limey?
3: Maybe right. So where he's like, because out of sight, right? After years of sort of struggling to define himself after those yeah. sex lives and videotape hype, right, he makes a lot of you know, more indie movies. Right. Out of sight is him being like, "Come on, guys, look, you know, give me some movie <laughs> stars, give me a genre film. I will give you something yeah. that is way better than it could be, right? Like you know, something that's really special." Mm-hmm. And and then that's what's happening with Aaron Brockovich. Like Aaron Brockovich is a like a very packaged. Yeah, Oscar movie. You know, it's a true story movie. It's a lo- legal movie. It has a movie, and he, but it's way better than it oh. could be. Obviously, like i you know, yeah. Ocean's Eleven, like you know, um. So yeah, maybe the limey he has, he's like, I'll do a Nora movie. I'll do right, like this will be great. Yeah. But there's no way he thought this would be a <laughs> hit, right? I mean, it stars <laughs> Terrence stamp. Like it's a, it's a cheap little movie. Like, yeah. but maybe he was just like. Without a sight, I had elevated the genre a little bit, and maybe he's looking at this in a straightforward, because it's a very simple movie. The plot is simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, So maybe he's looking at it all straightforward, and he's like, oh, no, thank you. It's funny, because the other Lem Dobbs movie he makes after this, I know he'd worked with them before.
0: Yeah,
2: Kafka, yeah.
3: Right, but the the one he makes after this is Haywire, which is also, that movie is impossible (laughs) to follow. I've seen it twice. (laughs) I never remember what the plot is. And I don't know what the situation with that script is either. But like, did he cut that one up in a weird way too? Because that movie is a blast. I really like it. It's a lot of fun. But like, I just I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you what the plot is.
0: They have a fascinating relationship, Lem and him. But yes, go ahead, Kenny.
2: Soderbergh often seems to follow a a big giant hit like like Out of Sight, which I guess it wasn't. But you know, with something that's um, a complete. Go fuck yourself! I'm going to do, do what I want to do, and I consider right. Haywire that too. I remember when Haywire getting made, him saying almost in almost in a she's all that type dare, I can make a star out of Gina Carano, like right. I can do it, right. sure. you know. And, and he same, almost he was, did it. He he almost did it. Like there was a moment. <laughs> same with right. Magic she's Mike. Dope. Like yeah. I can make a male stripper movie. You know, yeah. I can do it. So he and same with he's done this so many times with Bubble and even with Mosaic and all these things where it just you know he he has this big massive hit and
3: then says uh, Candelabra
0: as well I mean Candelabra yeah yeah.
2: I
3: think that he is someone who likes to you know try stuff um, is very happy to admit his failures Mm -hmm. uh, very quickly like it's it's not like he's someone who you know like Logan Lucky which is a good movie Mm -hmm. was him being like. Um, we can market this movie in a different way. I'll cut the trailer myself. We're going to market it to audiences that don't get marketed to as much like in, you know, uh, the South and in the, you know, like he was trying to find like, how can we do a cheap out? Av- and it totally didn't work. And when I interviewed him a couple years ago, he was like, yeah, that didn't work. Like, it's not like he's like, well, <laughs> it would have worked, but like, he was like, no, that didn't work. You know, and same with unsane, like they make that movie mm-hmm. really cheaply. Let's like, you know, and it, it didn't work. Sometimes, it just doesn't take properly. Mm-hmm. And that's, he seems to be kind oh. of chill. I mean, I think maybe when he's making the limey, he's less chill because he really kind of, yeah, yeah you know, he he's looking for a foothold again. Now, after he's done the oceans movie, like, I, I think he's, he's much more relaxed about like what he has to offer. He's happy. Well, to like, look around.
0: at, look at mosaic. I mean, that's a, that was an experiment if ever there was when like, he's just yes. willing to take swings, you know, and, 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 and he's also to your point, willing to admit when he, you know doesn't connect
3: uh right and i think now he's very pro you know netflix and all the you know like he he's very happy to take advantage of these younger studios that are just you know throwing around money to see what sticks on streaming or what you know but he obviously he likes movies. Like he's going to, yeah. he's going to make, I'm sure he'll make another cinematic film again. If like cinemas continue to exist. Um, yeah. But right now I think his next movie is an HBO max movie, right? Yeah. Like he, yeah. you know, I yeah. think he just wants to make a movie every 18 months now. That seems to be his thing.
2: I love that about him. And I love that. You yeah. know, I love that he, he is pretty agnostic in terms of where his shit winds up. Like bubble right. very, you know, kind of famously did, was the first day and date film. Right, uh, that was
3: and a, a way ahead of its time, and like thus a failure, but like a great idea. You know, really mm-hmm. obviously becomes a great idea. You know, people That's are eventually right? doing that. Right, yeah.
2: right. And even you know, I th- I remember at the time thinking there was boldness in taking a show like The Nick to Cinemax, which yeah. was garbage. I mean, now I'm not mm-hmm. even talking about like like <coughs> Cinemax at night. Like I like, like Cinemax's ethos was we are going to present you with the high with some high minded garbage. And right, Cinemax.
3: The other shows were all just like you know, shoot 'em ups, B movie shit. You know, like Strike yeah. Back B- or whatever. Like those were like you know, very very yeah. right. I never I never watched a lot of other and Cinemax I, and I, programming. Yeah, and I
2: think I respect, <laughs> I, mean, I respect it so much. I think that I think that yeah. we've seen it so many times in the, over the course of this, especially TV because it's so easy to identify a network brand with what's on it. Uh, with a right. show making a network, you know, with, you know, Mad Men coming along and making something legitimate like that. And I really respect the, yeah. the I will go to the place that gives me the most freedom to make what I want to do. Um, but, yeah, I think that I think, look, I I think some of these experiments we're talking about as the failed experiments. You almost forget how many of his his, his experiments actually succeeded. right. How yeah, many right. of his great movies are experiments? Sex, Lies, <clears> a videotape <throat> is just an experiment that really yeah. succeeded. So I think yeah, that's but- really
0: interesting, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I also love the fact that he's willing to do television as well. I mean, I think the Nick was great. You know, he's apparently working on a six part miniseries with Lem Dobbs about Eamon Pasha or uh, the I don't know who that is, but apparently this person was some sort of a. But it's I just think it's interesting that he's willing to sort of some
2: sort of a watch, film I'm dying to know.
0: Oh, I can. I mean, I, I, you can look. I'll look at up. that. Up. Yeah, um, but it, it's it's I just think it's fascinating that he is he. He's limitless, right? He's the type of guy who is looking for ways to challenge himself. You know, in his own way, he's he's always sort of doing a little bit of what Matthew Barney does, the whole like trying to restrict, trying to put restrictions on himself to see how he can yeah. succeed. Right. And even just right. like the way he, you know, when he won his Oscar, the way, you know, his acceptance speech was all about like I'm just for art, guys. Like make art, go make shit. Like I don't I know. know what it is.
3: He's so embarrassed that that. You remember, do you remember yeah. Maybe it was a couple Oscars ago where, like, apparently the nominees were shown that speech as, like, this is the platonic ideal of an Oscar speech. It's short, it's to the point, it says something nice. He's off the stage pretty fast, like, when they were trying to make the Oscars move. Sure. And when I, I remember when I interviewed him, I asked him about that, and he was just like, I was drunk, (laughs) like, it was the end of the night. And he was very clear in a way that I thought was, I believed him, where he was like, I absolutely did not think I was going to win. Like, I was a teacher's pet. I was a double nominee, like because he'd been nominated for, and so he was like, "I just assumed like I was going to split my own vote." Ridley Scott was nominated that year, you know, that was sort of like the Ridley Scott year, and then there was Ang Lee, you know, like that. It is crazy that he won that year, but it is. um, So I think he just wanted to get off the stage quickly, but you know, (laughs) he's a smart guy. He gave a very, it's a very nice speech.
2: speech. I'll I'll, I'll read. uh, I'll read him in First paragraph, Memon Eamon Pasha Born Isaac Edward Schnitzer Baptized Edward Carl o- Oscar Theodor Schnitzer Was an Ottoman physician Of German, G- German Jewish origin Naturalist and governor of the Egyptian process Of Equatoria On the so, upper Nile, the Ottoman Empire Conferred the title Pasha on him in 1886 There and thereafter he was referred to as Eamon Pasha So are you in or out?
3: I'm in, <laughs> I'm in on anything Yeah Yeah <laughs>
0: So um, I'm just going to give a brief synopsis of the Limey for the people that might not have seen this film. Uh, the Limey right. follows Wilson, played by Terrence Stamp, a tough English ex-con who travels to Los Angeles to avenge his daughter's death. Upon arrival, Wilson goes to task battling Valentine, played by Peter Fonda, and an army of L.A.'s toughest criminals hoping to find clues and piece together what happened. After surviving a near-death beating, getting thrown from a building and being chased down a dangerous mountain road, the Englishman decides to dole out some uh, bodily harm of his own. As written by Lem Dobbs, as we talked about, um, directed by Steven Soderbergh. Uh, it was first shown at the 1999 Cannes Film Festival on May 15th and opened in North America on October 8th in 20th place. Uh, Artisan was clearly platforming or attempting to platform this movie uh, up against random hearts and superstar to classic 1999 movies. Uh, and it would end up making $3.2 million worldwide on a $10 million budget. It's got 92% of Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 78 from audiences. It feels like, and I, I'm, I'm curious, obviously, to hear what you guys think of this, but, you know, I went to see this film after seeing Out of Sight and definitely thought I was getting another Out of Sight mm. and left the theater a little bit disappointed. Um, I was 19. I think that I just, I don't think I fully locked into what he was doing. I clearly didn't. I now think the film's a masterpiece. At the time, though, I'm wondering if audiences had similar feelings to me, which is this movie was marketed as he's doing another out of sight, but with old guys. But it's much more of an existential kind of, as you said, memory play that I think people just didn't really know how to lock into it. I don't know what you think, David.
3: Um, I think the first time I saw this movie, I was a little baffled by it. The editing style is so aggressive and unusual that I think – as a teenager, I was like, well, I, I don't. And like, I think I, my guess is I saw this movie from what I remember, similarly to when I saw sexy beast, which is another movie that I very much oh, like, yeah. that's Blimey. also about like a really intense British cockney guy. Ben Kingsley <laughs> in that case, you know, who yeah. kind of like dominates the movie, but sexy beast, which is great. But that thing looks like a music video. It's really slick. Yeah. It's got all this yeah. sort of visual stylization, like to the scene, yeah. you know, that's a great movie. Um, it's also very plotty in a way. Very this plotty, and I think right. I think I thought this was going to be oh, yeah. It's like Terrence Stamp giving a wrecking ball performance and just like you know smashing through LA. And in fact, like I mean, he is giving a wrecking ball performance, but he really there's only like two scenes that are tense, like that where he <laughs> is confronting someone, right? Like there's the scene where he enters the party, which is sort of midway through the movie, and then there's the big shootout at the end. The rest of the movie is him like trying to settle on his memories of his daughter and how he feels about the fact that she's gone or him like chatting with people in this sort of weird and exciting way. Like where like they're just having yeah. a conversation, but I, I am like, what's going on? My brain is melting. <laughs> and especially, I mean the, the Bill Duke scene, especially, which is kind of like
2: unbelievable.
3: Kind of the, uh. the showiest scene in the movie, kind of the best scene in <laughs> the movie, probably. Right. Yeah. I mean, Bill I Duke, he's in, he's in, High flying, Brett. I'm trying to remember if he's been in another. I feel like Soderbergh knows to drop him. He is such an incredible. I mean, he's a good actor no matter what, and obviously he's a good filmmaker as well, which I think Soderbergh respects him as a filmmaker a lot. But like, he's just you know, just for a one scene kind of someone who has total authority. Great guy to drop in
0: presence. Yeah, yeah, it's just fantastic. I mean, I think that. Part of it too is that this movie, as, as we've said, is the plot and a lot of the character depth has been stripped out of it in the editing room, which is something that Lem Dobbs complains about pretty prolifically in the commentary track about how he feels like the movie just never, uh, got to the place he wanted it to in terms of depth of the surrounding characters. Soderbergh was just like, I just want to tell this story of, of this father and daughter. Like that's, that's, that's what I want to tell. Um. Right. And, and Lem's feelings are you, you stripped the guts out of my movie. Um, right. You know, I, listen, I, I understand as a writer, I understand taking umbrage with perhaps a director taking a hatchet to your script. Sure. But at the same time, I also feel like, I don't know. I don't know if I needed another kind of hard boiled LA crime story told in a straight line. Like that to me just sort of doesn't seem particularly interesting to me.
3: I, yeah, I agree. It's like, I, I, look, I can't, I, as you're, you're right. Like I can't, I've never had the experience of like, I write a movie. I know how it looks in my head. Right. You know, that sort of experience, you know, and then you give it to, you know, director takes over. And then when you see the movie, you're like, well, this just isn't what was in my head at all. I'm sure that's a weird disconnect. Yeah. I'm sure it happens all the time. Like it's just, I feel like this movie's just notorious because of that commentary, which, of course, Soderbergh is kind of a legend for doing, where Lem Dobbs (laughs) is chewing him out the entire time. (laughs) That commentary, I feel like, became a movie unto itself, like, in a culty way, but, like, it became a thing that had to be discussed if you were talking the line. (laughs) Like, did you know that there's this, like, really sort of confrontational commentary that goes along with the movie? There
0: are... I have to... I Go ahead, Kenny, sir.
2: You can do... the, the The thing about that is... You could do that about any single movie. Any writer who says they're happy with the way the movie wound up <laughs> on the screen is uh, lying or they're really insecure. Because, well, sure, right. You know, Because it's impossible for a director to, put a, put, to, to take exactly what you want out of a movie. It's also, it's also antithetical to what we're doing um yeah. that's just not what this what this art form is for
0: the most part. um It's collaborative. I mean, that's what makes movie making and that's what makes it exciting.
2: Another director, when someone else is directing your work, their job is to interpret what's on the page and see it through their lens. Their their job is not to try to put not to try to be you. If you if you want that, you can direct your own movies. And I think Soderbergh <laughs> says to, to Lebda, he does at one point. When, you when to are direct? you gonna direct? <laughs> Which is a gray line. Be, yeah, but I don't mind. I mean, I love that it exists because I I, I think yeah. it's really interesting from um from almost a historical document point, point. and I do think it's the right place for Lem Dobbs to to complain about it to critique. Frankly.
0: I would also say right. too that that I love the fact that it's clear and and I don't know if you felt this in your interview with him, David, but mm. Stoderberg likes to be challenged. Like he wants someone that's going to go toe to toe with him, and. Yeah. This commentary obviously is a perfect distillation of that. They're obviously still friends. They're still working together. So, you know, any contention that might exist on this, uh, on this commentary track is you know is part of the fun, I would assume, of getting to make this movie. But there's two quotes that I need to say of Lems from the commentary for people that haven't heard it. He says, people ask me, do you like this movie? And as a disinterested, objective filmgoer who had nothing to do with it, I'd say it's a good movie. I'd recommend it to my friends. But as a screenwriter, I think it's crippled. He also says, screenwriting is hopeless. If Robert Town still complains about Chinatown, what hope do any of us have? So I, I think that this guy is, is a little bit nihilistic about writing to begin with. So, right. I mean, that. that so, I mean. it's and the only screenplay credits
3: he has post year the score, which I think he co wrote with a bunch of people. Correct. So I, I assume he did like a pass on that. Haywire obviously. The Company You Keep, that Redford movie that I've never seen, that's sort of like the Weather Underground-y kind of movie. And then Gotti, which (laughs) is a wild credit. I mean, that's a horribly written movie, like, no offense. Like, I don't know that... I don't know... It's not like I saw Gaudy and was like, the problem here is the screenplay, but it's not like I I don't remember the writing being good. Is he the only writer? So, I don't know. No, it's with someone else, so I don't know... Who, whatever, like you know, if Lem, because it's possible, very possible that there had been a gaudy screenplay floating around for twenty years, because like, I mean, the yeah. man was a famous Why monster. Like, it, it's right. very right. So maybe that was. I have no idea. It's just funny that, like, I feel like he's kind of a cool '90s screenwriter. Kafka, Dark City, and The Limey are pretty cool '90s credits, and he's yep. this like film historian. He loves noir. You know, like. So um, it's just I, – I just wonder what happened. That's, I mean, what, I mean she, these are better credits than I've got. Like I, you know, yeah. I just wonder <laughs> why he hasn't no, – no, no. <laughs> I mean, Haywire is a good movie. But again, I the script is not what I love about Haywire.
0: I do think it's interesting. This commentary track also, I mean, listen, Lem has an axe to grind from, from credits to credits. Like, there's no question he does. He calls that motherfucker in variety like several times throughout the commentary. Right. Sure. <laughs> you know, Who so- is he is.
2: <laughs> is that Brian Lowry?
0: No, it's, it's I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Stevie. But yeah, I, I, I do think that, um, I mean, it's hard to say. We're never going to see the cut of *The Limey*, where it's a straight line, and I don't want to see it, quite honestly. But I do think that it's interesting. You know, the the big sort of the big cut or the big sort of lift out of the movie that he complains about on the commentary is there's a scene with Anne Margaret, who plays Peter Fonda's ex-wife, who's the woman who owns the house in Big Sur. And he has a scene with her where he basically says, I gotta hide out here, so can you get the fuck out of the house? And it lifts out of the film pretty easily, obviously. We didn't need it. I didn't care. You know, I just assumed he had a house in Big Sur. Like, who cares? Right. But uh, at one point, Soderbergh says that he'll send him the scene. He's like, you can fucking have the scene. I'll send it to you. <laughs> like, yeah. it's just it's just great that they have this sort of back and forth It's a lot of fun. I don't know.
3: Um, it is.
0: And it I is. think you're right. In, uh he
3: look soderberg also like rarely writes his own movies although he has mm-hmm. right I've mm-hmm. obviously wrote Sex, Lies, and video I'm trying to think of like Got an he strikes for it, yeah. he did he strikes me as one of those guys who probably he has that kind of like oh whatever you know mm-hmm. yeah. attitude a lot of the time so like if he's taking a screenplay credit it's probably a movie like Solaris mm-hmm. is basically his and his last screenplay credit of a movie he wrote so must it's a movie that he was probably like Personally, yeah. driving right.
0: Um, but he, he works talks with a lot actually, of great
3: screen screenwriter. Screen what does he talk about? Go
0: ahead. Sorry, yeah. I mean, he talks in Rolling Stone. He did a pretty long interview right around the twentieth anniversary of The Limey last year, near the end of last year, where he talked about how one of the big sort of elephants on his shoulders early in his career was that he wrote everything, and then he realized like I'm a competent writer, but I'm not as good as these other people, and he's mm. like he talks a little bit about Paul Thomas Anderson and how he's like, I respect the hell out of what Paul Thomas Anderson and writer directors do, but it takes them four to six years to make a movie because they're taking on this burden Mm -hmm. of writing it themselves. He wants to make movies faster. And the way to make them faster is to shoot other people's scripts.
3: Um, Yes. He also just respects Stardom in general, I think.
2: Yeah, he does. I
3: remember debating that with him a lot. Not debating, just like <laughs> yeah. I, this interview I had with him was very, was like huge for me because usually when I'm interviewing a filmmaker, you get 20 to 30 minutes. You are going to talk about the movie, obviously, mm-hmm. and maybe you have five other minutes to sort of play around, you know, and like they're seeing a million people in one, you know, it just can be, it, it's fine. I've talked, I've had lots of nice conversations <laughs> with filmmakers. They just tend to be, but Soderbergh insists on an hour and insists on not like squeezing people in back to back. I think like he, he only wants to have these long conversations. And so, <laughs> I mean, that, That's so it's cool. very cool. And it was Ugh. a blast and he, and, but he's also not chummy. Like he's a little scary. Like he's kind, like, I remember I sat down and he was like the Atlantic. What's that like? And I'm like, <laughs> 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 you know, he's really, really, like, trying to throw you a little bit, but I remember we talked a lot about stardom because, like, he's worked with so many stars. Terrence Stamp is sort of an unusual one for him. But even here, this movie has such reverence for Terrence Stamp as a star, like, yeah. bringing in the Ken Loach movie, you know, like, you know, you know sort of... Peter Fonda. And, sort of, and Fonda, too. But, like, you know what I mean? Like, I was saying this to my partner when I was... I was like, people don't remember that, like... Terrence Stamp was, like, sort of seen as, like, a pretty boy in the 60s. Like, he was this really beautiful-looking guy in movies like Billy Budd... Like, cause he has this very striking, you know, these sort of, you know, dark eyes and this sort of mm-hmm. angular face. And now of course we think of him as he looks now. Cause he's, he's basically looks the way he looks since the night, you know, he's got the sort of the gray hair and like, you know, the sort of bow finger look, right. The limey uh, star Wars, like the stuff he's in as an older
2: actor, Yeah, yeah.
3: but he used to be so pretty. <laughs>
2: yeah. anyway, and I just That's remember talking to, you know, question, man. why is that? Why does Malcolm McDowell go from hmm. really, really handsome in like 1980 to 400 years old when he's in the player i I, I never understood that
3: it's a good question yeah i don't know why i think mcdowell lived like a tough life like he strikes me as someone who really partied i don't like which i'm not sure if that's true but he does he has that vibe a little bit um but you know obviously Soderbergh worked with Clooney a zillion times he's worked with all these big stars and i was like are there still big stars now because i feel like there's a conversation people keep having of like oh there's not You know, Hollywood's generation of stars isn't really as big anymore. Now it's more brands and superheroes. And he was like, no, absolutely. There's still huge stars. Like we were talking about The Report, which he produced, the Scott Burns movie. And he's like, that movie's people talking. And like, if you don't have like Adam Driver, Annette Bennett, you know, like it's just boring. Like you need these very magnetic sort of famous people.
0: You brought up Clooney and, and I'm, I'm curious because I couldn't really find any of a, there wasn't like a specific reason, but like they were really tight. They had a company together. They had section eight for almost like, I don't know, seven or eight years, maybe even a decade, it felt like, where they worked really closely and then they kind of went their separate ways. And I'm assuming it had to do with, you know, Clooney's desire to direct and, and perhaps do other things. I don't know what the case is, but it's just interesting that they, they haven't crossed paths again. And I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I don't know why that is. I don't know if you have any insight into that, but um, it's just interesting, right?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, this it, this is a good movie. Uh, it's a, it's an important part of his filmography.
0: Um, the other thing. You know, go ahead. Yes, I was just no, going to no, say, no. you know, it it does feel like this movie is it's a turning point for Soderbergh and all of that, um, but. It also feels like a movie that isn't talked about in the '99 conversation very much. No, which I think is interesting because '99 is such a big movie year,
3: and it's a small movie.
0: Yeah, but the reverence that I feel like people have now, looking back on it, it's just interesting. And and even Soderbergh talks about in that Rolling Stone interview, he's like, "Yeah, I read that book, best 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 movie year ever," and he's like, Mm -hmm. "It's insane how many movies came out in '99," and he understands why this film didn't rise to perhaps the levels of a lot of the other films but I think it kind of has I mean in film circles this is a lauded movie. Yes.
3: I, I I agree with you that in in at least more sort of filmy nerdy circles it probably has ridden to. It's just with 99 as you guys know you have to wrestle with like The Matrix, Fight Club, uh Blair Witch and I feel like there's a fourth. Like there's I guess Phantom and Menace, maybe Aldovich. but like yeah i mean malkovich yeah, and, mean, and, and magnolia you have to wrestle with yeah. all these movies that are sort of like yeah. defining genres defining indie cinema um and the sixth sense like you know it's like there's the, that mix of like just huge yeah. hits
2: yeah the high moment's um, it's incredible
0: yeah
3: um and then limey it's like did that change cinema no like it wasn't a big hit obviously not but like is it just sort of like objectively an inarguably great movie? Absolutely. Right. So like that maybe that's the issue with the lime is this sort of like it's this perfect little thing. It works so well. Um but it didn't, you know, its tail is maybe a little shorter, I guess.
2: Well I don't know. Wh- one of the things with ninety-nine is all the movies you named, obviously and some of them are from some of our greatest filmmakers, right? Uh you also have movies like um like *Bringing Out the Dead. Or, sure. yep. right. um, I mean, there's one other, oh, uh, Summer of Sam. These movies Summer from Sam, incredible right. filmmakers the that Devil are not their best one. movie. What was that? Yeah. Right with, with the Devil. Right with the Devil was being great, another one, yes. Great example. Right. These movies it, from these and, top, top, top filmmakers that aren't their best films. Right. And I feel like The Limey has kind of fallen into that part of the 99. But to me, yep. I, I think Bringing Out the dead's an incredible movie. But like... To me, the the Limey is top shelf Soderbergh. Uh, it's also part of the reason I love Ninety Nine so much, which is like <clears throat> you have these like twenty Stone Cold classics at least. Um, <laughs> but the bench is so deep. The like the the this random the stuff is that is playing in your yeah. in your cinema <laughs> any given weekend is so good and so deep. I mean, we've yeah. since we've come back, we took a little hiatus. Since we come back we we've we've hit so many great incredible movies like but I'm a cheerleader which is nothing mm-hmm. you know in the grand scheme of 99 but in, in another year in 2007 or 8 people would have lost their shit for it not because of changing times just because of a you know a, a basic lack of of uh, product so i think that, that that's an interesting kind of aspect of yep. of this
3: um, yeah, another one that occurred, Existence, that's another like yep. Celebrated Master making a sort of like movie Peter. people are hot, cold on. There's there's one other that occurred. I was sort of like browsing Well, Sleep, up, yeah. Sleepy Hollow, which I think now is mm-hmm. pretty much well regarded. But at the time, it was kind of like, eh. yeah, I, I, I feel like that one had more of a mixed reputation at the time.
0: It's not considered, it's not considered Tyler so Burton. So, right, right. Right, which day. I, I think it's also interesting to talk to in terms of like Terrence Dance performance in this. I'm a little, I mean, the movie wasn't a hit, so I get it. But this easily could have been a Best Actor nomination. I'm a little surprised that you know your your old school Academy in '99 didn't give Peter Fonda one or perhaps give Terrence one. I looked, you know, looking at the five nominees, it's a solid Best Actor category, I but like it makes <laughs> sense. But well, I think. It,
3: the thing the movie didn't do well enough, right? Like if it had done better right. maybe
0: it would have gotten a little more buzz. Right. But you
3: also have you have the Richard Farnsworth nomination as the kind of yeah. like let's all band together and get the sort of beloved veteran nomination. Like that's that yep. slot. I mean cuz yep. Spacey, Crow Washington are pretty much those are sort of obvious, like Kevin Spacey, American Beauty, Russell Crowe, big sure. transformational performance in The Insider, Denzel Washington, you know, big star playing a real person in The Hurricane. So, like, I guess Sean Penn is a little surprising, but that's also kind of a weird transformative performance. And obviously, yeah. the Oscars yeah. were really into Sean Penn in the nineties; yeah. like, he got a lot of nominations. Yeah, I'm trying to think I mean, of I who can, missed yeah. out. Like, I'm trying to think of like who are the who are the, who else was sort of close there? Because like. Well, close stamp's well, not even getting like a Golden Globe nomination. Yeah, right. I mean, like, is, right. Yeah.
2: Close is an interesting term because it does kind of feel at the time like most of those guys are pretty set. But yeah. you know, looking back now, I mean, you have like to me, we all think that Matt Damon should have been nominated, you know, for telling Mr. Ripley. I, yeah. yeah, that's
3: certainly that's a big one. Yeah. And
2: Nicolas Cage is to me like incredible in bringing out the dead. Tom Cruise and yeah. Eyes Wide Shut should have won. So, like, there, <laughs> there are so many of these things that, that in retrospect, I think are obvious. Well, like, Damon and Cruz to me, and Nicholas Cajun. Yeah, they're, they're, those are incredible. Every year we do our re Oscars for the movies we've seen. So, and, right. and, and I would even say Pacino in The Insider. But, um,
3: no, I'm but, seeing who the big snub was this year, the one that I remember being the snub, which is Carrie, right? Jim Carrey and Man on the Moon.
2: Oh, who right, won right, the Globe? Right, right, right. Oh, and
3: p- and people for- I think after Truman's show, he yeah. won the Globe for both Truman's show and Man on the Moon. Yeah. And I think after Truman's show, you know, he missed out on that. I think people were like, Oh, well, he'll get this. He's playing a real person, yada yada. And again he missed out and it became this sort of narrative of like, oh, clearly this he is regarded as a pain in the ass, right? Because it must like there's a weird sort of bias against Jim Carrey at this point. Yeah. Um, and So I feel they gave like it to another pain in like, the
0: ass in Sean Penn. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, and they gave, right. and they gave <laughs> and, the award to the
2: biggest pain in the ass.
3: I but, mean <laughs> that's the thing. Sean Penn the other thing is that it's just Woody Allen movies are yeah. were beloved by the Oscars, like even if they were small. Like, you know, he just had that traction yeah. that I guess. Soderbergh doesn't quite yet. Like Soderbergh had gotten that sex Lies and videotape nomination, but apart from that, you know, he's no it's next year that they're finally like, "Hey, you know what? You know, hey, you've been you're great." Like you're you're in the that's, t- that's I mean, that's,
2: I, it. Yeah, that's it for him with the Oscars, right? For the most part in uh, the the Traffic Aaron You mean after Traffic
3: Aaron Brockovich? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Tra- Traffic Aaron Brockovich double nomination and all that. Uh, I don't know if he was nominated for anything again after that.
3: I don't think he- so. He doesn't make but a lot I would, of Oscar movies, yeah. I
0: was just gonna say it They're feels like he's, <laughs> he never I don't I don't know that he takes another like legit Oscar swing. You know what I mean? Like you, you mentioned how no. Aaron Brockovich oh, is I, like I think so, it is, I, I think
2: Solaris was two things at uh, that one time. I maybe think, i think solaris was absolutely a passion project that that, that was unlike yeah. anything else and it's one of my favorite movies i, I, I love it that, i love it i, I also but. think in the world where you know every time terrence malick made a movie it was getting nominated i think he thinks it could have i'm sure he thought that there was a world where that movie could have gotten nominated.
0: perhaps perhaps i mean i, I my, my point more than anything is i was rewatching a little bit of aaron brockovich last night which i think is like works like fucking gangbusters that movie is just it, it just so knows good. what it's doing it's fantastic. Um, and from the second that Julia Julia Roberts shows up on screen, you're like she's winning an Oscar. Like there was just there was never a there was never yeah. a question. It might be the biggest Oscar lock that, within my generation that I can think of. We're just like yeah, she's winning, right? So, um,
2: can, can, can we play that game real fast? Yeah. What else is on that list? Big the biggest Oscar what? lock from from the moment you saw that. <laughs> I mean, I had like, mine. There, there. To, to me, there's the most obvious one to me. What? Is Jamie Foxx and Ray like you just, just knew the moment you heard him?
3: Yeah, I I, um, I know what you mean about that. Yeah, that did feel like. I mean, that, it's often that it's the big transformational performance because you know how well those go over. Um, I, I'm trying to think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not a big uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Capote fan, but I oh, think there yeah. were some people that Please. felt like that was another one. I mean, he he shooed right, right. in. I mean, yeah, that's the
3: thing. Like, also, Last King of Scotland. Like, anytime you would see those performances, where you're like, "Oh, this just feels right." I mean, that's how I felt. I remember when I saw Marriage Story at Toronto, um, and the audience like burst into applause after Laura Dern's big uh, speech, and I was like, "Oh, right. This is obviously just going to happen because it's <laughs> it's the combo of like uh, people like the performance, and it's just yeah. everyone's ready to give her an Oscar. Because that's the thing with Roberts too. Is like. She had mounted enough of a comeback. She had sort of re, re, you know, burnished her star image. So now it's like, yep, like congratulations, we're ready to give you an Oscar. It's cute. Monique and Precious yeah. was one of those. Oh, two. Monique and Monique's Precious, hundred percent. And like, and that's the opposite. Where like she didn't even really campaign. She was kind of a little hostile to the Oscars. And it was just because it was like, who gives a shit? She's winning. Like, there's yeah. no question. Like, that's just a <laughs> performance. Everyone's like, it's sort of undeniable this year.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I, I fully agree with that. I mean, I, I really do to some, to some extent. Yeah. I, I, I uh, think yeah. that yes. the Terrence stamp in this movie, um, just to highlight his performance for a second, the way he delivers lines is so intense, like through gritted teeth, basically. I mean, at right. least the opening line of tell me about Jenny, tell me about Jenny, but it, it's, it's so close. Like this could have tipped so easily into caricature, but it yep. keeps the whole thing grounded. He makes it feel lived in. Part of it has to do with poor cow to a certain degree, which is the Ken Loach film that Soderbergh gets uh, the rights to from Warner brothers to be able to uh, intercut into this. So it just right. gives that, that history to this, to this character that just makes him feel much more lived in. But, but my God, like just, you know, we talk. About, we were talking about that scene in the in the uh, DA agent's office where he's just going off on a Cockney rant of just you know of the greatest proportions, <laughs> but right. and it's it's played for jokes. But the rest of the movie, he's foreboding. Like he is a legitimately scary person. Um, you know, I think
3: that scene is crucial, the, the the Bill Duke scene, because right initially he's just this sort of frightening guy and it's, oh, and he's playing up the, the cartoonishness mm-hmm. yes, like he, yes, intentionally, yeah. right? Like he's like, I'm gonna like, you know, freak people mm-hmm. out. Like, right. Like I'm going yeah. to, you know, um, and then in the bill Duke scene, he is initially doing his whole thing and you're cutting, you know, like he's Soderbergh is doing that crazy where, you know, where the, the, the quick cuts as he's talking mm-hmm. and then we're cutting back to bill Duke, who is still like very you know unmoved and very like un unentertained, and then you see him finally uh, chilling out like uh, like you see um, Stamp kind of like settling down and getting more reminiscent. And so, like and in those scenes, you're like, oh god, he totally has a handle on this yeah. character. Like it's not yeah, just yeah. him yes. being like, all right, I'll do some sort of cockney rhyming slang and I'll be intense.
0: Uh yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's really uh it's it's a really masterful performance. I mean I I yeah. think that the way that you know and and Kenny mentioned it in our opening, but the the movie continually cuts back to Terrence sitting in that airplane, um and us not knowing if that's him going to L.A. or leaving L.A. The reveal obviously right. at the end being that he's leaving, and what reads on his face with the slightest of, of emotion throughout the film is a testament, not just to the editing of the fact that like his face speaks differently at different points in the film, but just this it's, it's just the subtlety of, and the nuance of Terrence performance is, just, is really remarkable. Yeah. It's a, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, sorry, David. Yeah. No,
3: it's fine. I just, I was just going to say like, think about, describing this movie to someone it's a british guy his daughter died he's trying to get revenge like there's just yeah. not and like it would be it, it's hard to sell this movie to someone just based on plot i guess you would sell it as like it's this big performance it's this yeah. like musty performance but um yeah,
2: yeah well i all. think you know it's its interesting we you I, I mean i would i would sell it to most people by saying it's a revenge revenge thriller and then i think you get so many scary bros on board yeah. We did payback already. Which sure. is payback is point blank, right? And payback this, is
3: point blank. I, I haven't seen it in years. How how did that hold up? I saw that when um, I was like a teenager.
2: We did the director's cut, right Phil? It was uh badish. Yeah. But sure. um badish, right? Yeah. So it's like it's it, it's not a terrible yeah. movie, you know, when I you mean Mel covered-
0: Gibson kind of the Mel Gibson of it all kind of swallows that movie on some level, so it's kind of hmm. hard to see it through a but I know what you're saying, Kenny. It was well, it was not great.
2: It wasn't great, but like revenge thriller, you've you've done so much of the work already. You have a very clear motivation, and you have a you know, you, you, there's so many there's so much pathos built into a character who's lost and is trying to revenge that that you can just go on that journey. What I would always kind of bother me about Point Blank, and this is kind of stupid, but um, is is how easily um i forgot the guy's name what's the main guy in point blank
0: oh oh uh,
3: you mean lee
2: marvin uh, lee marvin how easily yeah. lee, lee marvin uh tackles every situation he's he's outmanned by four guys he punches two of them in the balls and everyone goes down um yeah. and there, he's, he's he's never challenged in the situation i what i loved about this was how realistic i felt like every every confrontation Terrence stamp was in felt he did not feel right. like the guy who was going to go in and beat the shit out of four guys and move on to the next room. In fact, when he was presented with four guys, they beat the shit out of him and it was only because he's a crazy motherfucker that he went back in there and shot four or three of them, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. And I love that about this movie. I love how believable I felt like the whole thing was in its own way, a man with truly nothing to lose Um Who's willing to kind of do whatever it takes, and then the 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 ending when he when he pulls back right at the last moment is incredible. To me.
0: Yeah, I, I I also just want to talk for a second about Louise Guzman in this film, who oh, is so good, so good. And and listen, we, I don't know what was cut, and what didn't make the cut, and what have you, but the performance that we got, which is perhaps one of the most stripped down Louis Guzman performances, not really playing for jokes as he yeah. usually does it's a really solemn, emoting, thoughtful performance from Louis Guzman. And it's, it's a bummer that we don't see him do that more. I mean, he's, I guess he's kind of that in traffic, but not really. I mean, he's kind of played more for jokes in that. He usually is your,
3: I mean, I guess that's his role here too. It's maybe this, this is just kind of like a weirdly muted movie in a way, but like he's, he's your guy you bring in. He's an incredibly charismatic reader or of any dialogue. Like, he just is <laughs> yeah. naturally just very funny and very magnetic. And this is just the absolute, when he is the king of character actors, it's like him and, uh, you know, honestly, like Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley those guys yeah. who get used a lot by the Paul Thomas Anderson's mm-hmm. and Steven Soderbergh, you know, like, so with what is like Boogie Nights, Out of Sight Snake Eyes, the Limey, yeah. Magnolia, <laughs> Traffic, like he, where he's just like always yeah. popping up always funny Mm -hmm. um but you're right this is a more love it (laughs) yeah it's it's and it's sort of low-key and maybe that's because stamp is actually so Mm -hmm. you know cartoonish in a way like Mm -hmm. that he's kind of reacting to that and he's like you know what i'm gonna play this guy is kind of like exhausted almost Mm.
0: he also plays something in this film um and i don't think it's i don't think it's romantic but he loves jenny like you can really right. sense how That's heart why heartbroken he's Indian. he is. Right Right. Yeah. And it's and it's why Stamp
3: it's why uh Karen Stamp trusts him. Like mm-hmm. you know, you might you might just begin the movie with him like throwing him around the room water, but like you can tell that Wilson's just like, no, I yeah. I can tell that, you know, whatever. You're you're genuinely upset about this.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really I mean that's part of the power of the editing of this film too. Is that one of the things that that Soderbergh retains is how much everyone loved Jenny, like Leslie and yeah. Warren loved her, and 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 Peter Fonda loved her. Like she doesn't. Uh, we don't hear a line of dialogue, I think, from Melissa George in this entire film. We don't. And the, I, only the, the in muted, right? Like, yeah, is, is yeah. tremendous. It, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. It, it it's It also you know part of the the lyrical component of this film, which is obviously really beautiful, is that at the end of the film we have the moment when I guess Wilson sort of inadvertently realized that he was part of the reason she died that this phone gig that they would do bit that they would do with her threatening to call the cops, is what led to the fight with Peter Fonda, which led to her to her death now i don 't yeah. know if that necessarily is the reason that he doesn't kill him. I think he doesn 't kill him because he's, he's grown and he has learned the error of his ways to a certain degree or another, but I don't know what you guys interpreted it as.
3: That's how I interpret It's sort of that. Well, it's also that like, see, you know, being reminded of how she was as a kid and how she was as a grown up. you know, like he's reminded that like, Oh, right. She, she would not want me to do this. Like, and, and like, you know, she, like she was always trying to keep me on the straight and narrow uh, as best she could. And so there's that, like, he's sort of getting pulled out of vengeance mode by that kind of memory, I guess.
2: There's there's also, like, a a bit of a magic trick with the Peter Fonda performance, the way he's written, the way he's shot, the way he's Mm -hmm. portrayed. The fact that Mm -hmm. this guy is basically, you know, one of the first things you learn is that he knew his current girlfriend's parents. Parents. Because he suggested her name. So he's yeah. known this person since he was a baby. Yeah. So and right off the bat, you're skeptical. But when he gives that, Phil, you, you send it to me. When he gives that little yeah. monologue about the 60s, and I,
0: I – I, I can read it if you want me to read it real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Um, did you ever dream about a place you never really recall being to before, a place that maybe only exists in your imagination, some place far away, half-remembered when you wake up? When you were there, though, you knew the language, you knew the way around. That was the 60s. It wasn't actually that either. It was 66 and early 67. That's all it was.
2: So there's something about that and the way this movie shot that, that taps into something that I feel about L.A., that I have completely lost in the 15 years I've been here. But <laughs> the the way I felt about L.A. before I moved here was like that monologue,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? It, not even the... It, I was never so attached to the, the Hollywood parts of it. It was always the... For lack of a better comp, the fletches of the world—the things that existed around, ho- around Hollywood, the the downy yeah. down hills, the though you know what I mean—and I think the limey taps into that to some extent for me. And Peter Fonda, Peter Fonda is the uh, the POV to to give you that. I don't want him to die at the end of this movie, is what I'm getting at. I don't think that he is a murderer. I think that he is a sad, lost soul. And I think it would almost be cruel to kill this guy at the end of the movie. I, I that's that's how I felt. Yeah,
3: he's It's it's sort of a bit of a red herring. It's like a good red herring in that, like when he's introduced, you're like, oh, I get it. This guy's a scumbag. Like this is the villain. uh, Great, I'm zeroing in on this. And and Fonda was playing a lot of villains. And like, remember, he was in Ghost Rider. Like,
0: oh, that's right. I
3: forgot about that. (laughs) He had sort of made this like late career. Like he's kind of devilish, I guess, in a way. Like the sort of sunglasses, like his whole look.
2: Well, he became Um, a paycheck guy,
0: right? He
2: like. It definitely, I think, yeah. had some,
3: yeah, needed money I don't, or something. I don't know. I don't it know seems it like
0: does. it. I think there's also, I mean, that this all taps into the fact that this film is about being over the hill. It's about yeah. the end of your life. It's about looking backwards. Um, and it's about how Peter Fonda looks backwards fondly. And it's about how Terrence looks back not fondly. Like for him... Yeah. It's it's all the past is filled with with mistakes and, and, and things that he regrets. Peter Fonda looks back on it and says, "Like I had a great time. I lived a great life." I mean, I, I think, um, and and I think also part of this, part of that, uh, that he's not a villain thing taps into the fact that all of this, all this sort of uh, gus, for lack of a better way of putting it, is because he was running out of money. So he got into bed with these guys to kind of find a way to keep the lifestyle that he had grown accustomed to because he felt as though it was slipping away from him. So all of this makes him very wounded and sad and broken in a way that you don't want him to die.
3: Yeah. He's like a character from like a Warren Zevon song. He is very LA (laughs) in that way. And he has like the house that, was probably super cool at one point and now has this kind of like retro look that, you know, is cool in its own way. But it's sort of like that, that like slightly faded LA. I mean, I wonder if Fonda cared that he was being used this way or not. I don't know. Like, you know, because he's definitely Soderbergh is definitely trading on Fonda as, you know, a, a star of yesteryear.
2: David, have you ever seen the documentary? Sure. I guess they call it a film essay. Uh, the L.A. plays itself, or Los Angeles plays I have. itself. Yes, yes. Do you know yeah. how they yeah. they has a very long section on those modern houses, and uh, right, how they're always and he the the writer of the or the 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 writer director of this movie is, is very fond of those houses, and he hates right. the way they're always used to symbolize the villain. <laughs> I love those houses too. Right?
3: It's true. They are, but like I think LA confidential, there's you're right. There's so many movies where it's like a yep. villainous den. A lethal, yeah, yeah, lethal, lethal weapon.
2: Yeah, lethal weapon. And those houses are amazing to me and they're gorgeous and you only find them in LA or they only really belong in LA. Um but uh yeah I I I, I think that, that is your little shorthand right there for this guy is a soulless piece of shit. Um <laughs> Which is ironic because he, you know, obviously made his money feeding people's souls. So, uh, which you know, which 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 I love. But yes, I think that house is is amazing and gorgeous, and I love the idea that I didn't really realize because I always considered those houses to be modern. Those houses were all built in the fifties, right? You know, those are old houses. That's an old idea of the future, and that's something I find really kind of charming about them.
0: Well, it's funny you bring up the house because. Wilson and Eduardo have a tremendous scene by the pool that's filled with just incredible dialogue. Where basically, Wilson is looking out at the view and he says, It's like, goes like, wow. And Eduardo says, Yeah, if you can afford a house like this, you buy a house like this. And then Wilson's like, He's standing on the pool, right? And he turns to Eduardo and says, What are we standing on? And Eduardo says, Trust, Uh, which is just incredible. Because, like, the house is amazing.
3: There's also one. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I feel like uses that where it's like mm-hmm. the house that Leo's character has in that, which is you know a smaller version, but like that oh, kind of yeah. you know it's got a pool. Like he's like that was when I made it when I could like buy that house. Like that was, yeah. and I'm never gonna let go of it. Like you know that's sort of like the mm-hmm. symbol of his stardom or what his brief stardom to himself. Yeah. yeah. If you it's doubted, also
2: there's Lu- also
0: um, sorry go ahead Kenny.
2: If you doubted that Luis Guzman was an actor or trying to be an actor in that movie, that line gives it away.
0: 100%. He also has what I would maybe argue is one of the best lines in the film where he says, you could see the sea out there if you could see it.
2: Yeah, that's a great line. Right. That like, That is yeah. that is the most typical fucking L.A. real estate thing, period. <laughs> I, <laughs> I've i been in so many houses where people have said, you know, you can see the ocean out there on a clear day.
0: So it's it's really it's it's really something uh it's also it's really something impressive on the commentary you also get to hear Soderbergh talk about Fonda and how he really kind of let him off the chain and just really kind of let him do whatever he wanted to do and and there's there's the scene after Wilson throws the bodyguard over the railing and obviously the ambulance comes and picks him up the cops show up um and uh Avery is talking to Valentine and Peter's really loose in that scene. You can sense that there's very little guardrails on, like, the lines and the way that he's saying them, which is really, really special. And then at the end of the scene, uh, Avery says, you know, something about, like, you always seem to dodge a bullet. And and apparently Peter Fonda made up the line, I learned how to skate when I was young as he's walking (laughs) out of the room. And then, as soon as he yells cut, he tells Soderbergh a story about how some famous fucking actor taught him how to ice skate or some shit. No, like Sonia,
2: like, Hedy, who was, who was like uh, an <laughs> Olympic gold medalist from Norway, the world's <laughs> most famous yeah. figure skater until like the 90s. Yeah. Until like the it's 80s. Crazy. So, like, Harry DeVitt.
0: Yeah. Because he was, yeah, you know, he's very fond Son. I want to talk real quick about Nikki Cat, David, because I feel like Nicky Cat had a moment. Did. And then he disappeared.
3: <laughs> I know. I mean, I think now he's best known for that, like, uh, for being part of the Dark Knight's most famous sequence. Uh, he's in the van. Like, right. That became his weird swan song, um, yeah. which is odd because he's not old. Like, he's 50, I think. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why he stopped making movies. I don't know if there's a story to that. Like, you know, know if he either. just, because, like, in the 90s, he would pop up and stuff, and yeah. he was kind of a good villain, kind of like like in movies like Insomnia, right? Like he's sort of like um, a supporting character, who's kind of prodding at things. Mm-hmm. Like he's a little, you know, like he would pop up and stuff like that, and you'd be like, "Yeah, Nikki Cat, I know, I know him." Um, he's got Adam Goldberg. Soderbergh uses him. Yeah, 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 100%. Right. And like, Soderbergh uses him in this in full frontal. Is he in another Soderbergh I feel like Soderbergh liked him.
2: Yeah, you know, the last movie he was in was Behind the Candelabra, interestingly enough. Right, which he's, yeah, he,
3: right. He's got a little, go. yeah.
2: I, I You know, I like Mickey Cat. I,
3: I, boiler yeah. Room is sort of like when he's almost a star. Not a star, but like he's almost a leading man, right? Yeah. Usually he was your supporting guy, but like, I am genuinely interested to know because I think he was a child actor like I think he had worked in the biz Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. since he was a kid so I'm genuinely interested to know if he just decided like you know what I had a good run I'm going to tap out like I'm you know goodbye I was the guy who's like yeah
0: He's so acerbic and droll. Like he's, no one delivers a line quite like him. And I think that he's just that guy that you, that you want to have in your company, that you want on your bench, which is why, you know, he obviously tended to work with filmmakers that had sort of big ensembles for the most part. I mean, like he's in suburbia. He's really good in suburbia as well. The, the yeah. later film, like he's, he was really good. I mean, maybe there's a story there. I don't know, but this to me felt like. When he showed up, I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, I forgot he was in this. And then he he steals every scene he's in. He does. Yeah. He's really um, he does. Yeah.
3: He's really fun yeah. in this. I mean, this movie, anytime time, like, he becomes, the, he's sort of a weird red herring in this movie, right? Like, yeah, yes. when they drop him and you're like, oh, this is going to be, you know, this will be part of the whole, and, like, you know, he becomes kind of more just, like, a bit of a cute distraction, but he's another LA type. <laughs> yes, right. That's, that's, the yeah. kind of like four higher scumbag is an LA type. And he is very good at that. Uh, uh Leslie and uh, Warren stuff is also too. good.
0: Yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah. She's really good. Sorry, Kenny, I didn't hear what you said. No, white guy. With white dread, guy with that's, that's a real <laughs>
2: 90, that, You know, that's that, that, that Gary yeah. Oldman thing that, uh, yeah. That you would never yeah, from, dare do to uh, today,
0: but oh my god, yeah! Or Angelina Jolie in uh, Gone in sixty seconds. I
2: mean, they um, did it with
0: Charlize like two years ago in Fast and the Furious, but it's a little different. They did. This is the second time we get uh, a magic carpet ride needle drop in ninety nine. The first one being in <laughs> Go. No, <Whoa. laughs> um, that good high here, mounted really shot <laughs> on top of uh, on top of Valentine's convertible down the PCH is one of the best shots in the movie. It's just that that locked off shot. It's just beautiful. It reminded me of the shot, a similar shot in um, Phantom Thread that, uh, that Paul Thomas mm. Anderson has when they're at night driving behind the car. Um, it's that whole PCH sequence, the whole story that Fonda tells about uh, the motorbike and Easy Rider, which apparently Soderbergh just told him to tell that story. So he just right. told that story. It's, I
3: mean, he it's strikes a- me as a guy with a lot of stories, too. Because like, he's the guy who... like, <laughs> yeah. um, he's the guy who gave the Beatles acid, right? Like, you know, like he's the one who says, I know what it's like to be dead. That, that, right. Isn't that, isn't that the the urban legend? Like that was a line that he said to Paul McCartney at a party or whatever. Like he's been around. And of course then also he's Hollywood royalty. Like his dad is one of the great golden age actors. Like, so I'm sure Peter Fonda is overflowing with like the kind of showbiz stories that Steven Soderbergh would just like, like yes, as much as possible, give it to me.
2: But I had a real uh, cast. did you you read that right? That yeah. really. Soderbergh had to be convinced by Dobbs to yep. cast Peter Fonda. I don't know who he had in mind. That's um, nuts so, because
3: is so well cast.
2: Yeah, <laughs> right. Wait, right. I mean, I, it does strike me in, in some ways as a role that a lot of a lot a lot of interesting actors could have done interesting things with it, but it would never have been the same.
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. There's
0: a lot of takes on that role that you can yeah. offer up. I guess. Um, yeah. yeah. I. I the, so the the fight at the end, the the gunfight mm-hmm. at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of love how not great Soderbergh is at shooting action. <laughs> like, yeah, and and
3: also just no one in the movie is. Particularly good at shooting people. <laughs> like everyone's just kind of like, yeah. it's probably how it would go, right? Like, yeah, it was kind of clipping each other, yeah. kind of yeah, firing they're hitting wildly. Shoulders, the security they're hitting- guards, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's, it's there's also something great about at the end. They're on the beach, which is that beautiful magic hour blue lighting, and. Wilson is walking towards uh, Valentine, who's broken his ankle, and he's just shooting, and Wilson's not even, yeah. like, moving. He knows that none of these bullets are going to come close to him. It's amazing. It's, it's such a great Yeah, show. that walk
3: is very iconic, right, where he's just, like, very deliberately walking across the rocks. He, he, right, he seems to have no fear that Fonda's <laughs> going to clip him at all. Um, and, again, there's another movie where it's like, he's a Terminator, he reaches his kill, and yeah. he executes. And then instead, of course... You have this nice you know quote unquote nice moment um, of him sort of putting all these flashbacks these that have been like unfolding throughout the movie together. You know, you have the kind of bleach bypassy flashbacks of mm-hmm. uh, Melissa George, you know grown up mm-hmm. um, what's her Jennifer <laughs> and the, 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 <laughs> the, the, the poor cow stuff and the, the, the flashbacks of her as a kid and all that stuff. Um, I don't know what what Lem Dobbs' problem is, except that he wrote a different movie. I guess I guess that's his problem. But like, <laughs> if I saw this, I think I would just be like, "Holy shit! Oh my god, this is great! I had no yeah. idea
0: <laughs>
2: this was in there." <laughs> I know, yeah. It's yeah. like the Stephen I, I King shining you know. stuff. I, I'll never, and for the life of me, I'll never understand what Stephen King's fucking problem is. Because <laughs> even if you think that you that that you wrote something different, and that there's a better version with Stephen Weber on ABC. That you <laughs> ultimately you have to respect that this is that that what Kubrick did with your piece of your your piece of literature is so important for the world, like I, you did it go ahead him
3: um it's. The Stephen King thing, as far as I can tell, for one, he seems like a prickly guy. And also, he's sold a bajillion books, so he probably just thinks he knows best. But, like, I think the shining for him is Stephen King's, like, confession. It's like him being, like, I'm a shitty husband, I'm a shitty dad, I'm drunk, like, you know, right when he's And then he sees this movie, he's like, it wasn't about how I'm a psycho. It wasn't about, you know, like, he's just completely baffled by Nicholson. He's baffled by all the change, you know. And, you know, whereas it's obvious Kubrick read the book and he was like, this is trashy, but I like the hotel idea. I like the you know the cabin fever thing, and they're both right. Like you know, or whatever you know. Like King's book is good in its way; the movie is good in this way. They don't align very well, but that's okay. It's okay to have you oh, know no, different man. things.
2: It's all there. The thing that's crazy there. is that's that Doctor the Sleep. About.
3: The thing I like about Doctor Sleep. Is that it somehow is a sequel to both? Like I, I, you know, which is why it's not totally successful. But the Doctor Sleep, he's like, I'm going to do a sequel to the film The Shining, but I will also adapt this book <laughs> that is so much about how The Shining was poorly made as a right? You know, like the book is very much like all that shit in the movie. No, like you know, the sequel <laughs> is not at all, right? you know, somehow does both.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, So, uh, David, we were going to do our top five Steven Soderbergh films, so hopefully you're on board to do that as well. Um, For sure. I'll I'll start at number five. My number five is Aaron Brockovich. I mean, we talked about it a little bit already, but I, I, I will say this. I don't know that anyone makes a studio movie that doesn't feel like a studio movie better than Soderbergh does. Like, that film is top to bottom, It mean, literally two studios made Aaron Brockovich. It stars arguably one of the biggest movie stars in the world. Um, but it's bleached out as fuck. It's shot in such a lo-fi way. Um, mm. He just gets it. He gets how to make a movie that isn't showy. And then on the flip side of it, he can make Ocean's Eleven and make you the greatest fucking, you know, big studio movie ever. So that's fine. Aaron I Eckhart in that movie too? I oh, so love good. him. So good.
3: He's great. He's great. He's and that's a good against it's against type for Eckhart and also for the type he's playing like when he rolls in you're yeah. like oh I get what this character yeah, is and is, it's yeah. like no he's yeah right and it's like no he's a sweetie pie. Yeah. Um that's a great. I love that movie. That was an early grown-up movie for me as I was you know I saw that in theaters and it's like if I was seeing what you know r-rated movies at that time it was probably more because they were like action movies or whatever like that was just like oh this is just like a movie about grown-ups dealing with shit and swearing and you know like living lives and like <laughs> I, I remember it blowing my mind when i was a kid and right. uh every time i revisit it i just think it's so total it's not in my top five it's right outside it's probably number six for me but like it's like you say it's very to- like the, the 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 film grain like the way it sort of captures that kind of like blasted deserty California, like sort of strip molly like world, the sort of the Cheryl Crow on the soundtrack, like it's such yeah. a it's such a perfect timepiece. And obviously Finney is just extraordinary in that. That is Soderbergh. I mean, Julie Roberts is great too. But like oh, so good. Finney, that's Soderbergh being like, you can you can ham this up a little bit because you're a movie star and I need you to give me what you've got. Like you don't need to approach, you know, cause he knows that Finney is kind of a hammy actor in a great way.
2: <laughs> yeah. Love that movie. Yep.
3: Um, uh, what's your number five, David? Uh, it is ocean's 11. Um, which it could arguably be his number one movie. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I just like a lot of Steven Soderbergh movies and, um, yeah this my my three to five is very close together i know what my one and two are very easily but uh but yeah i have oceans at five um you know come on it's just it, the, the <laughs> problem the only flaw with oceans 11 is that it's so slick that when you watch it you're like oh well that's like a popcorn movie that's confection like
2: yeah
3: yeah he did that in his sleep like he got these movie stars he shot vegas you know like you know Nothing even bad seems to have, like it. It seems to just go so well. Like you know, like y- you don't understand how impossible it is to make a movie like that until you see lots of examples of it being done badly, right?
0: Or just I don't know. Look at the original, which is boring as fuck. Well, sure, it's just <laughs> so
3: boring. I remember I reading an in interview with them at the time. Like it was like Empire Magazine interviewed, like Soderbergh, Clooney, Pitt, Damon, right? You know, and they were like. You know, when we got together to make it, like the first thing we did was we screened Ocean's Eleven and, you know, it fires up and you got the music and you're like, oh yeah. my God, Vegas All in the 60s. Guys, and then, like, yeah. five minutes in, they were like, oh Jesus, <laughs> turn this <laughs> off.
2: We can wait, I mean, let's talk. I, I know that I'm, I'm positive yeah. Phil has it higher and so do I. Yeah, as do but, I. Yeah. Um, but we can talk about it a little more now. Ocean's Eleven was one of my dad's yeah. favorite movies, the original. So I watched it as a oh, kid okay. a lot. Oh boy um and you know there's a little nostalgia to 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 that for me but it is a terribly boring movie i think ocean's 11 i think i've said it before on this podcast i think it it is the it is the best studio movie ever made um at least in the last 30 years in terms of something that was crafted to be a a blockbuster and actually was a blockbuster um it's not my number one but um ocean's 11 is the most watchable movie of all time like it's so like, rewatchable. Like, it's period I mean, end of sentence. It is yeah. the most watchable movie. My eight year olds flipped out for it. I will not turn it off. I don't feel it way about any movie now in like the era of on demand, where if it comes on, I'll just stay. I'll stick with it. It is the and it is to your point, David. It is not worth even de- deconstructing this movie because you will never do it right whenever right. whenever yeah. you whenever you bring it up in a writers room or in a pitch or whatever you inevitably find how difficult it is to do one scene of this movie let alone the whole mechanism yeah. so it uh it I is mean, and, and you can
0: see movie. you can see how wonderful it is by comparing it to the other two films in its trilogy as well i mean i think ocean's 12 is a is a uh a- a failure, but like a noble failure. I appreciate the, I the swing. It <laughs> certainly would fill your, your blank check podcast for sure in terms of like, that's a blank check movie that some people would be on board with and some people might not be on board with. And then 13 is just a, a shrug. But
3: Disagree on both. Ocean's 12 <laughs> and Ocean's 13, both incredible. Uh, I advise <laughs> to rewatch them. They rule. <laughs> okay. I mean, Ocean's uh, 12 is a movie about... Hollywood and about making a yeah, movie yeah. and about yes, making yes. sequels and how important, right? Like it's a very meta movie. And then I think like for 13, he's like, Oh, you guys wanted like Vegas. Like you just wanted like another fun Vegas movie. Great. I'll just give you a movie. That's about how Vegas is the coolest, even though it's the cheesiest. Like that is, I, I have to admit, I, think I have Ocean nothing 13 is, since
0: the theater. So
3: I think it is incredibly underrated. And I too, had kind of forgotten about it like after I saw it in theaters. Right. And I recently, in the last year or so, I watched all three again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, shit, 13 is good. I forgot that 13 is <laughs> really good. And the all ending right, is incredible. Like the ending is kind of like gives you shivers. And it, it's kind of about like, you know, it's got that whole thing where it's like if you shook Sinatra's hand, you're in a club. And like when you hear that, like you're like, God, that is such horseshit. <laughs> and then, you know, but then you're like, oh, but of course, like, that's who these characters are. Like, of course they would feel that way, you know, like, and it's sort of like, yeah. It's got them, like, whereas 12 is like, this is all, in, you know, this is all dessert. This is all silliness. 13 is a little more like, no, come on, these guys give a shit about this. We can give a shit about it.
2: I'd like to watch 13 again. 12, I have watched out. again very recently. Um, and 12 I, is and just I, insane. And I think 12, I, I think 12 is an abomination. <laughs> Um, I, I, and and I, and I, for a very specific reason, (laughs) um, and this is, this is maybe I'm, I'm, this is maybe coming from a personal place, but I've written on a few shows that have gone multiple seasons as of you, Phil. And at some point you start to, you have to accept that you are no longer going to get a new audience that you are no longer going to win an Emmy, The critics are not going to care about you, that Twitter's not going to talk about you, and your only job at that point is fan service. You have to. Mm. You have to to protect the audience you have and also give them what you want, and they deserve it for sticking through with your show. For Soderbergh to come after Ocean's Eleven and make a esoteric (laughs) French New Wave-adjacent film about jerking each other off um mm. essentially that isn't for anybody who loved ocean's 11 is such a no, fucking not really insult <laughs> to people no, who love great. that movie but I I I, I I I I, I i think it is it is so it is so <laughs> condescending and patronizing so to your ball ocean's I, 13 point to do that to do it 13 under duress Kind of bothers me too, but at least well, I will give it another another chance. I have always wondered
3: about thirteen if they were like asked to make it or pressed to make it. Like if they themselves were like, "No, we should do another one." Like because it right twelve did okay, it did fine, uh-huh. but it didn't do. As well as 11. And it was, you know, you could have sort of been like, oh, you know what? We didn't need to make sequels to Oceans 11. But like 13 kind of makes the whole thing, the whole package work a little better. Well, I think that,
0: I mean, Clooney and Soderbergh kind of needed a hit around then a little bit too, where I think they both wanted just a little bit of, you know, a little bit more, you know, clout behind them. But so what's your number five, Kenny? Uh,
2: My number five is America's most popular movie, Contagion.
3: Contagion rules. Uh, God, what a good movie!
2: Yeah, Yeah. it's a it's a great movie. It also (laughs) has some of that like you know what's going on in three seconds, um, and you're right in the middle of it. It's so fucking scary, and uh, it's obviously you know we're living through it, so it's pretty amazing. But um, yeah, it it it, but it has that sort of
3: competence porn angle as well, where it's like it's kind of great to see people who like are good at their jobs and know what they're doing. I mean it's also got that thing and contagions contagion and oceans 12 are right outside my five. So that's one reason I'm sort of like in on them. Um, but uh, I was talking to Alex Ross Perry recently, who's been on my show a bunch about it, I guess, because we were talking about the phenomenon of people watching it. And he's like that movie, it's like black screen cough, cough day mm-hmm. two, like, you know, where he's just like, it gets into to the rhythm of all of that so quickly. Like he's so good at, Knowing the skeleton of those kinds of like these kinds of genres yeah. and and knowing when to 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 pull out and when to just sort of like barrel through.
2: This is I think this speaks to why Oceans Ocean bothers me so much. Because most of his movies It's him being like I, these is, things are silly, you know. Well he has such faith in the audience. He he he, mm-hmm. he, he in general he thinks his audience is at least somewhat film literate. That they don't need the bullshit explained to them, and Ocean, <laughs> Ocean's Twelve feels like <laughs> it feels like he's basically saying, "Can you go with me here? Can you do this <laughs> with me?" This? Like it, it. I don't know.
0: It bothers it's a me. It, it, it is a test to the audience for sure. I agree with
2: um, that. But, but I think I, likes- I
0: do love Contagion. Yeah. I think Contagion was an and an,
2: also just an incredible movie-going experience. It's it does this thing. That that outbreak did too. I love outbreak, where you're sitting in the theater, looking around at everybody in there with you, and being like, "Holy
0: shit, I'm pretty close to you," you know? Like, <laughs> sure, Holy sure, sure, shit, you sure. You could kill me with yeah. a cough, so it's good. Um, my number four is the limey. We don't need to talk about it anymore. We've talked about it for an hour and a half, but um, that's my number four. What's your four, David? The limey. <laughs> I, mean, I went a little higher uh, with the limey, just a, just a tad. <clears throat> what do
2: you that what's means, your 4 That means I get to be the one to introduce a conversation on Magic Mike. <laughs>
0: great
2: movie. <laughs> one of the greats. Uh, uh, Magic Mike's a great movie. I think I cite Magic it's Mike. It's so much fun. Along with Boogie Nights and Jerry Maguire, uh those are probably the three most cited movies by me when I'm pitching shit out. There is just something about Magic Mike scene by scene, the structure the way – I, I will never get over the way that Alex Pettifer is introduced as protagonist and it changes midway through. I fucking love that. Um, I love the excitement. I love the guys. I love everything about it. I think it's a, it's a really incredible movie. And it's also like very slyly um, a really big moment in kind of uh, taking, taking the knees out of toxic masculinity in this country. Sure, sure. A lot of men it's, would not watch it when it came out, and found mm-hmm. it eventually, and realized this isn't so scary. So I think that's kind of like a sneaky little legacy of the movie as well.
0: I fully agree. It also feels like an Oscar snub to me that McConaughey didn't get one. Oh, a huge snub! Yeah, like that. That to me um, feels like. I forget like, why. I forget why too. Is and and forgive me. Is it? It's after or is it before Dallas Buyers Club?
3: It's before. Yeah. Um, and I think that Dallas Buyers Club is partly his win, and his kind of like the reconnaissance thing is partly uh, them being like, we know we whiffed on on That's not funny. getting you in there for Magic Mike.
1: Yeah.
3: Uh, I can't remember. I mean, the thing about Magic Mike is I'm sure it was the reason it didn't get a hit. It was it, it is it was seen as like a somewhat trashy movie, right? It's about strippers, but like it was a huge box office hit. That is, it's a hit on the level of Ocean's Eleven in terms of like, it's a little bit of a re like Soderbergh had been a little bit in the wilderness again for a few years, like Mm -hmm. making stuff like the good German and bubble. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And like, and he, and he's taking on this, this genre, you know, he's making a male stripper movie, which um, no one certainly had ever made a successful box office hit out of that, you know, um, work environment. And even female stripper movies, even like showgirls or Tease, like, we're bombs, and I think we're sort of like critically dismissed and sort of seen as like, oh, God, that's like, that's too lurid. And like, he threads that needle so perfectly. It is it is kind of him being like, yo, I can make a really crowd pleasing hit out of a thing you might not think of.
2: And the other thing is, Channing wasn't considered to be a a, a star or a serious actor he at that was, point he was not serious taken seriously right he was he also was see- like he's a
3: pretty yeah. boy he's a model. he's a dancer right you know like come on like do, do, do give me a break
0: yeah yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it was i remember was being in a movie that was a great theater going experience too that was one of the one of the better like sitting in a theater with that movie people fucking loved that movie like that movie worked like gangbusters um but yeah uh my number 3 is a movie that didn't work like gangbusters uh Solaris Um, Mm -hmm. I love Solaris. I saw it, I think I saw it two or three times in the theater. Um, It just really worked for me. But again, like, this is him in kind of limey mode in doing, like, a tone poem, memory play, you know, very sort of a very light script. Like, there's not a lot of dialogue in that movie. It's really just about, you know... Um, Something that Lem actually talks about on the commentary track, which is this fallacy, he feels that movies can't show the thoughts of a character; that you have to like say them. Mm -hmm. And I think that this idea of telling—it's—it's very Terrence Malick, right? It's the idea of like a visual poem and what that elicits, and what you kind of bring to it and your baggage or your life that you—and Solaris to me feels like one of those films, similar to the Tarkovsky original of like. What are you bringing to this movie? And what you bring to it is what you're going to get out of it. And I think it's Clooney stretching muscles that he hasn't really done before up until this point. Um, Really kind of pushing himself. I know it was supposed to be Daniel Day-Lewis, and I certainly would have loved to have seen that movie. Yeah, I like Um, this movie. but I, and it just, and, and Cliff Martinez is unbelievable score. It's beautifully shot. It's produced by James Cameron. Um, I was kind of hoping you guys were going to do an a, a episode in your Cameron uh, miniseries on Solaris because he produced it. But, but it's just, it's, it's, I think it's a fascinating movie. I don't know what your thoughts are, David.
3: Uh, I'm gonna hold off because that's gonna show oh. up later. Yes. All right, cool. I, um, but I, mean, I love Solaris.
2: I, I it would be five A or five B. I mean, I only wrote down <laughs> six movies, so I put contagious. I put Contagion above it. Um, yeah, frankly, because I didn't want to lead the conversation on Solaris. But um, I love. I love it. I remember sitting in the theater and what's uh, just 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 having it wash over me. It's an incredible movie. Yeah. It's an incredible film. Uh,
0: what's Bathing your number three, it. David?
3: My number three is Sex Lies and Videotape, which is something I wrestle with because in wh- it's, it's a dated movie in some ways, and like I, I feel like Soderbergh might roll his eyes at me putting it high because to him he might be like, "Well, come on, like I I've done so much since then, and that was such a like you know get on the map movie." Versus, but I still think it's a pretty undeniable thing, um, and I still think like. Take away the videotape, but it's still a pretty current movie about (laughs) sexual politics. Surprisingly, so given that it's like more than thirty years old, and everyone in it's so good,
2: I consider putting it on too on an early list before I went through the whole filmography. It was there for me. Um, Just subject matter. Just I remember watching it in college and just being so shocked by what someone was willing to put on film. Uh, No pun. And uh, so I really, I really, really love that movie. It's, it's a, it's kind of a, a cornerstone movie for me.
3: It's funny to think about, uh, which that he, I don't think of him as a shocking filmmaker in general. It's not like he <laughs> then is like, yeah, I'm going to be the guy who puts it all out there in my movie. You know, like he's as good a studio filmmaker as he is an indie filmmaker.
2: That that's part of why it's so good because it 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 wasn't presented in a way that it was trying to shock you. It was presented in a very matter of fact, confessional way, like literally. But uh, you know, I mean, just everything Spader does in that movie is kind of, I don't know, it's 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 almost like emotionally exhausting to think about it. Um, yeah, how vulnerable he is. But I write I'm crazy about it.
0: What's your what's your three, David? Uh, sorry, uh, Kenny. That's right, my three. Right. The Limey. the Limey. All right. Uh, my number two is Ocean's Eleven. I mean, it's uh, I, there's not much more we can say about it, but I'll just say this: uh, whenever it's on, and it feels like it's always on TBS uh, or TNT or something like that, I, I get sucked into it. I have to watch it. It's it's just it's it's undeniably rewatchable. It's a uh, similar to you, David. I hate airplanes, so it's an airplane movie for mm. me. Which is that it's very calming and it makes me feel good, and it's all it's all fine and good. Um, so that's my number two. What's your two, David?
3: Out of sight, um, which I would imagine is a lot of people's number one, and would be close for me, and is a perfect movie top to bottom, uh, and one of the great movies of the '90s, um, and one of the great movie star movies of, mm-hmm. of all time, probably, and like it's the it's it's the Clooney movie, right? Like you know, Clooney doesn't have a movie career without this movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, if you think you know, and it's the I don't know the template for like every noir movie and it's uh, like that comes since. And it's, it's a career highlight for pretty basically every single actor who's in it. And I've watched it a million times. It's a, it's a perfectly edited movie. It has one of the best love scenes I think ever put in film where they're, you know, intercutting between them, having the conversation and taking their clothes off. Like I, you know, it's just one of those special things where it feels like everyone's getting together to be like, Let's have a good time and make this really fun movie that's kind of like a bit of a throwback and a you know you know pulpy and romantic and silly and sexy and you know uh, and they just it just like every single ingredient was perfect, and thus the most sort of like perfect version of that movie was created.
0: Yeah, it's it's one of those films where you know it it also revitalized a genre a little bit. Like I, I think that it's it's an unsung hero in a lot of ways in terms of like obviously Tarantino was the guy that that sort of changed the way people perceived all those kind of schlocky films from the from the past. But this film found a way to do that in in a in a more subtle way. If we're being honest, like it's not a movie that's rubbing your face in how cool it is. It's just effortlessly cool. Uh, Scott Frank's script is is unbelievable um and it's you know jennifer lopez obviously had a moment last year with hustlers which is a tremendous movie and she's great in it um but anyone who was surprised that she was capable of that performance has not seen out of sight because she is fucking fantastic in out of sight
2: amazing
0: um yeah so I, I'll, I'll do um, two in, i'll here. do
2: two and one because it's you mm-hmm. know here we are uh oceans 11 is two out of sight is one um same with me yeah for every for everything david said i mean like this is yeah. it, it it's, it's and I think you really hit the nail on the head for me, David. I don't, I don't get the feeling that anybody went into that movie thinking they were going to make one of the great movies of the '90s. Um, there, right. There's not that ambition,
3: like, yeah. that can sort of choke a movie out, right? Like that kind of like, <laughs> yeah. this is it, like you know, like which even Ocean's Eleven has that kind of swagger. Yeah. Out of Sight's just like, hey, we're making a fun movie. Like it's an Elmore Leonard book like yes. this will be fun. Yes.
2: And and I think that there were a lot of movies like this made throughout the 90s that that weren't nearly as successful. Like I mean The Long Kiss Goodnight reminds me of this to some extent. Get Shorty reminds me of this of course. I mean there's um even a dumb movie like Reindeer yeah. Games reminds <laughs> me of this. Like there are a lot of movies that try to do something like this uh because it is, you know, such a sexy premise. But there, but this is just like it's just a shooting yeah. star. I, I love every
0: Jackman movie. It's Can I ask a question? To, to, to I have a question for you. I have a real quick question for you guys because both these films came out in '98. Um, which do you like better, Out of Sight or Jackie Brown? Jackie
3: Brown's '97,
0: not '98.
3: Crazy is person, is yeah, it? Yeah, Christmas '97. This That's Christmas, Papa's got a brand new bag.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: My apologies. My,
0: well, the, the question—the question still stands because they're both Elmore Leonard, yeah. you know, adaptations. Well, and, and, and Nicolette and is the Michael connecting. Keaton, yeah. right?
3: Plays the same yeah. character in both of yeah. them. I s Those are two movies I adore, and they're very different.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah.
3: It's uh, a tough geez. choice. I, I might think, give
0: out of sight. The, I might give out of sight the edge, a slight edge.
3: I think I pick out of sight because it is, like I say, perfect. Whereas Jackie yeah. Brown, I adore but does you know it's like kind of yeah. big and loopy and has some side side tangent stuff and like you know yeah. it's got that Tarantino flavor uh, mm-hmm. where he kind of lets things run long in a way where you let him get away with it but out of sight is just kind of tough to argue with
2: i don't know i love comparing movies it's one of my favorite things to do and there's something about this comparison <laughs> that i don't like cuz i <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there's something about the, like by picking one, which I would pick out of sight. It's not even a question for me. It doesn't mean in any way yeah. that that I don't think no, Jackie Brown is like yeah. you know an A plus ten out of ten. Yeah. So you know out of sight is just on that like probably <clears throat> top fifteen, top ten movies of all sure. time for me. So it really it's a special, incredible movie. Um, so David, I've deduced still, what your number one is. Yes, let's see. I want I want to hear oh, the yeah, case. Solaris. Let's hear um, yeah that's my, that's my favorite
3: Soderbergh movie. I mean it's just a personal thing. like um, it's a movie I've watched a lot, which I suppose is odd because it <laughs> is a frosty and very very sad movie. Um, and of course it's also a remake of like a total genre defining masterpiece and it was held up against the movie it's remaking from the second it existed and it you know obviously it's, it's that's a very tough shadow to live in. Um, But it's a a movie that's very special for me. I mean, it's just like one of the most emotionally real films he has ever made. And that's funny to think of because it's a stylish movie and it's a space movie and all that. But, like, it's also this sort of, like, very grounded little sort of play with these four great actors, Viola Davis, Jeremy Davis, Natasha McElhone with Clooney, um, all kind of like dealing with their insecurities in front of each other in ways that play out in all kinds, you know, like, and like, I love the Tarkovsky movie as well, but like Solaris is basically like 100 minutes of like, what if you could not get over something and then you went to a place that made you have to get over it or have to at least confront it. Um and I just I saw it in theaters, I thought it was brilliant, I've seen it a million times since. When I interviewed Steven Soderbergh, I had to tell him like, hey, like <laughs> I love Solaris, like that's that's big, maybe my favorite movie of yours. And he immediately was she was just like, Yeah, but I built all the sets, you know, so it costs too much money. Why did I do that? Like that was his reaction <laughs> to me saying, like, I love Solaris. He's like, Yeah, but it costs like sixty million because I built all the sets. And, like, it could have cost less. Like, I was so into myself. Like, what was I doing building all the sets? And I was like, well, I love it. And he just kind of gave me this, like, you know, this sort of shrug of, like, okay. Um, so, I, and I, Which is funny because then I interviewed, recently I interviewed Barry Jenkins uh, mm-hmm. with his first sort of, like, a pandemic-y, like, what movies are you watching when you're in lockdown? Yeah. And he brought up Solaris. He said he'd shown it to his partner, which I also have done. And my partner's reaction was like, "That movie was incredibly depressing. Why did you make me watch it? And he described it as the longest hundred minute movie ever made. Uh, it, well, it which, is. you know because it, 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 it's not a long movie, but it does feel like yeah, yeah.
2: I, I, you know, I, I, you, you know I'm happy I didn't leave the conversation because I think I would have called it a two and a half hour movie.
3: No, it's like 90 <laughs> minutes uh, right it's yeah. not it's yeah, not even a hundred minutes long yeah. And, yeah. And his he partners, said partner you know, partners he, Lulu Wong, right. That's right yes I'm guessing and she, she liked had never it. seen it and <laughs> I think so yeah and he said he knows Soderbergh, right he's not good friends with him but he knows him and he's talked to him over the years and that anytime he brings up Solaris Soderbergh like kind of doesn't talk about it he's just like sort of like eh, I don't want to talk about it so like clear I do think that like, it is a, he does regret that that movie didn't connect at all obviously it was like weirdly marketed it in sort of a famous F Cinema score movie. And it's such a funny little blot in his career and in Clooney's career, because that's when Clooney was really like a total hit maker. Like, you know, he really was in a lot of smashes just year after year, like post Batman mm-hmm. and Robin, post him being like, I'm not going to make, you know, shitty Hollywood stuff. I'm only going to make stuff that I think is yeah. good and work with directors. I, you, know, all, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, I love it. I watch it all the time. I watched it recently. It's great. It's my favorite.
2: Solaris. It's one of those I, funny movies I, I, where I, I, um okay. where it's not a movie for a mass audience, obviously. But where Soderbergh was and where Clooney was and where the culture was in terms of the way we worship stars and the way we were kind of entertainment night and access Hollywoodified, it was presented as a big space epic. And there was an expectation that this was going to be if not a fun movie, um, a compelling movie, which which it is. I am not saying it's not, but I mean for a mass audience. I think the whole thing was the, the the whole thing was you know you go to space and your dead wife is there, right? Yeah, right. And that's a hook. I see that hook <laughs> for you know, but it's not the yeah. movie I think that that any audience expected. It made, this, the F Cinema Score makes perfect sense. That's how that happens so often. You know, that's how
0: Mother gets an F Cinema Score.
2: Where you put I would Jennifer also Lawrence say too, right?
0: The the movie that it most reminds me of is Eyes Wide Shut. Um, now eyes wide shut i think is is a, is obviously a very different film, but similarly has sexual overtones that are deeply upsetting and cold um it, it's it 's about regret it 's about a male character dealing with his relationship with his wife like all it's it's all kind of there and i just think i think there's something interesting to those two movies both kind of not really connecting with audiences and both having gigantic movie stars. Like, it just goes to show that there's a a ceiling to where audiences will go for Tom Cruise and and George Clooney. And we found it. 100%. When
2: Solaris was, what, 2004?
0: Two. Two. So we're two Two. years away.
2: I think it's going to have an interesting reappraisal in two years. Yeah.
3: Oh, in the 20th. I do think it's better regarded now. Like, at the time, I think people were really like, why would you remake this movie
0: mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> and why is this the result? Like, and for the one thing, of course, that's changed since it came out is that um, Viola Davis became one of the sort of like totemic actors. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Solaris, she's still very much like, oh, she's and she's not out of sight too. Like, she's a character mm-hmm. actor, yep. she's a good character actor. I think at the time, like, some people might have recognized her. But, like, she's fantastic in that movie. And now, like, so that, that – and, yeah. and Jeremy Davis has had sort of a great character mm-hmm. after career. So you have that as well on rewatch of, like, oh, this is, like, kind of a, a nice little ensemble.
0: Yeah.
2: David, I want um, to ask you a question so, yeah, uh, right. sure. that you may know the actual answer to. And if not, you know, please speculate. We're an hour and 15 minutes in the podcast. No one's listening. <laughs> um, yeah. What do you think <laughs> Steven Soderbergh considers his best film?
3: It's a great question. I bet you it's out of sight. I wonder though. I wonder what like what his answer to that would be. Maybe it's traffic. I mean like it's funny how traffic is kind of ignored now. Like yeah. it's sort of a dated movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um it's got his color filter thing, which at the time was sort of fun. And now has become such a trope that I think people are really sick of it. Like, oh, you know, you're lighting Washington in cold blue lights and you're lighting Mexico in this sort of, like, dusty orange. Like, um, Whereas at the time, I think he was just like, it's just a good way to differentiate between all the timelines. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) But, uh, so you know, I would would hazard a guess that it's out of sight because everything just worked with that. But Mm -hmm. I wonder if he has, like, a personal favorite that he would go to the map for.
2: It's interesting like that you che.
3: che is not bad. I like mm-hmm. Che. Che, che yeah. is, it's, you know, it's a long one. It's, it's, a it, long. It, it's a tough hang. Like, if you do them both, which you kind of should, because, like, <laughs> they're they very, yeah. you know, it's very much a yeah. two part movie. Like, it's yeah. not like they're separate films. It's
2: not like it, yeah. where you. But uh, there's a lot
3: of great play. stuff in Che.
2: Yeah, um right. Phil said to me on text before that there was a movie that that he expected you to have and that he had. I'm, that's obviously Solaris now. What I, I thought see. it would be, and there are just two more movies I want to just kind of touch on real fast. I thought it would be the informant for whatever reason. Really? Because okay. I loved Solaris and I hate it. It's a the good movie. It's a good but, movie. But um I thought it would be the informant and I thought uh and then also um you know, obviously it doesn't quite it it didn't make any of our lists, and I understand why, but Beyond the Candelabra, I think does deserve a little mention as a a, a later term Soderbergh movie that really kicked ass.
0: It's phenomenal. And, and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that it didn't end up being the last movie that he ever made, but, you know, it was an interesting uh, bow out, you know, at the time. It, it certainly felt like, you know, um, the end of something. Yeah, it's, it's a great movie. And Michael Douglas is tremendous in that film. I mean, it, it, he's really, really, so really is good Jamie. in that movie.
3: Damon is fantastic. Damon, supporting Damon is always good. Like, he's one of the most underrated supporting actors. And obviously, Soderbergh's used him supporting a lot because he's sort of supporting in all the Oceans movies. Like, the joke in the Oceans movies, right, is sort of like Clooney and Pit of the Stars. And Damon's like, I'm a movie star too. And they're like, (laughs) oh. It
2: might might be the best part of that movie.
3: The way he pops up in like in Che in uh, Contagion, right? You know, like he in behind. You know, he's always. Uh, and I, I like the Informant. The Informant is more like, maybe outside the top ten for me. Like I, I've only seen it once or twice. Same, people, I liked it. Yeah.
2: Some people really it's a, truly yeah. love that movie like deeply, but uh, I didn't know yeah. if that was you, Phil. And then um I one other thing I wanted to yeah. Ask, yeah. Oh, like, yeah, the uh, one other thing I wanted to ask if you. Don't let's we can keep talking, informant. I'm down. No, no, no. What, what, what do you want to ask? How do you feel about his last three films um, Unsane, High Flying Bird, and The Laundromat, which are obviously very different films, very differently received, um, differently right. exhibited? Like, I don't know. i I'm just kind of an open ended question on that.
3: I really loved High Flying Bird which I think is a pretty smart movie. I've seen it again. I've uh, I enjoyed it both times. I saw it in a theater because they screen movies for critics, even if they're Netflix, uh, like, you know, whatever, you know, which is funny because no one saw that movie in a theater. Um, but I saw it on Netflix later. I think, I think that's a brilliant movie. I think, like, that is his sort of formal experimentation working best because it's matching with a movie that's about, like, why don't we experiment with the form that is the, the business of the NBA? Um, the laundromat, I did not like at all. I remember like kind of being dialed into the first 20 minutes and then it just totally lost me when it's sort of like dipping into the various sort of plots of like, here are various people who are affected by this. And some of the plots kind of worked for me and others I was zoning out and it did not The Merrill reveal at the end is is absolutely The Merrill reveal is baffling and like... (laughs) Like, I would need to watch it a bunch more to even try and sort of figure out what he's trying to get at with that. And I didn't like the movie enough. But Unsane is a movie that when I saw it, I think I was still in that mode where I was like, well, it's just great that he's making movies again. So this is cool. And I remember thinking it was a pretty good ride, but I don't remember it that well. It also uses the cell phone thing kind of well, right? Because it feels like a movie that's been smuggled out. But like, yes. it wasn't a movie that like stuck with me where I'm like, this is like a top 10, top 20 movie of the year for me. Right.
2: I know that's a movie Phil and I both I don't felt know. like we, we couldn't hazard.
0: Too, too, too <laughs> triggering for me. I, I, I'm not watching a movie that questions my sanity right now. I, I think that's a bad idea. Um, so let's rate this movie uh, real quick and then uh, throw it to next week. But uh, in 99, I probably would have given the film a 75. I liked it. I didn't love it uh it absolutely fucking slayed me this time around uh before the podcast i'd give it a 90 and probably after i give it a 91 or a 92 i, I think it's i think it's a near perfect film um i absolutely adored it uh what did you think kenny uh
2: i'd say in in 2000 2001 when i first saw it it's sure. an we watched it i watched it a ton of times um i loved it i hadn't seen it in about 15 years at least i gave it an 86 after this i do think we didn't discuss it i do think it slows down a little bit in the middle um and it does kind of lose the momentum but uh when Nikki comes comes in it gets it back in a major way it kind of supercharges the movie that said i mean we're talking about you know very very small level of disagreement I, i am going up i do think it's incredible i'm going to give it a 91.
3: Yeah, it's a ninety for me. It's like a four and a half out of five for me, though, for mm-hmm. sure. And top ten of ninety nine for me, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Let me check my list. <laughs> list. I have it seven in my. Oh, you do? <laughs> can you <laughs> yeah.
2: can you give us the list again? I know you did with can Mr. You, Man. But can I, you read
3: I, us your list, David? I want to. I w- it may it may have changed. It changes all the time. My list always changes. Number one, Eyes Wide Shut. Two, The Matrix. Three, The Iron Giant. Four, Straight Story. Five, The Insider. Six, Blair Witch. Seven, Limey. Eight, Being John Malkovich. Nine, Mr. Ripley. Ten, Rosetta. Those are my oh, ten, yeah, but I honestly... It was,
0: it was unusual. That's, it was a great, that's a great list. It's a great. There's list. 30, was Bo- 30 great, great movies, movies that year, you know? Or was Bocheville...
2: Bo- I I Chivai, I, I have that as
3: a 2000 movie because of... It was released in American 2000. That's a difficult one for me because I know it's 99 by calendar. Like, but I have that on my two thousand list. Well,
2: I go by American. Do it because we just we take anything that could possibly be considered ninety nine and, and eat it up. We're doing audition yeah. later today. But, nice.
0: <laughs> um, so next week we have uh, your friend Joe Reed coming on, uh, David, to do cool. uh, the the messenger. What are your thoughts on uh, Luke Persona? Talk about another director uh, He made one of his less
2: lauded movies.
3: Guy. Okay. Um, I I. I think I have seen them. I think I saw it on TV when I was a teenager. I have no memory of it whatsoever. I remember having like <laughs> as typical for Lucas on these very like showy battle sequences that are are striking, right. but I also remember it kind of being like insanely meandering and super long, like
0: two um, hours and forty five oh, ex- minutes. Oh, exciting right. to watch! Right.
3: <laughs> um, and what do you know? Mean? He's a fucking troublesome guy. <laughs> he's a he troublesome just...
0: guy. What 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 are yeah. your feelings on on I mean, taking the the, the personal out of the equation, because we all know that he's obviously a problematic dude, what are are your thoughts on his films? Like, on The Professional, The Femme Nikita, or, you know, are you a fan or not?
3: I I like him as a stylist. I, like, you know, I have always thought his films were mostly flash in the pan, except for the sci-fi movie. I really do love The Fifth Element and Valerian, because they have that kind of um, (laughs) very sincere, goofy outlook, like, Whereas, like, The Professional is kind of like a nasty movie. Like, yeah. again, it's very cool. It's very stylish. Jean Reno is very good in it. But, yeah. like, and same with La, La Femme Nikita. Like, those movies are kind of like, they're a little gross. Um, whereas, like, The Fifth Element is so sweet. Like, it's such a children's movie in a way. It is. Um, and the same for Valerian. Uh, Lucy is also a movie that kind of like. <laughs> it's bachelor. You know, it. Like, quite, kind of quietly. <laughs> you know, you know. It's just funny because he's made like terrible movies. Like, he strikes me as someone who's really slapdash. He had that like weird period post fifth element where the messenger kind of mm-hmm. ruins him and mm-hmm. he mostly produces. And when he directs, it's like, you know, uh, animated films or like shit like The Family and The Lady, which like those are awful movies. So yeah. it's like there's no, there's no consistency with the guy.
0: Even yeah, I forgot about people, The Family. And, like,
2: the family is the family the the with, uh, with, with Diana Archon? Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. The family's Michelle Pfeiffer and De Niro. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I, the other the cinema do look guys, right? This sort of eighties poppy mm-hmm. French directors. Like you have Leo Carax, who doesn't like he doesn't make a movie unless he really wants to make it, and his movies are unlike anything else. And you have Jean-Jacques Beignet, who like Diva and Betty blue, like those are crazy movies. Like, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. Like, you know, Besson feels a little more like he was like, I can be sort of a Spielberg, but it means he takes a lot of shots. He misses. And yeah, yeah. apparently
0: he's, I, I think a, that he's, so he's great. a guy who, he's a guy who just didn't have a third act of his career. You know what I mean? Like those, his early French films are really interesting. He has some, you know, a couple big studio hits and then it, it really just sort of goes kind of nowhere, but. Lucy's I think the
2: fifth, think the fifth yeah. element is as good as it gets. Um, it's great. It's great. I, I truly, like a fifth element is almost like Moulin Rouge for me in that it's everything, right? Like sure, it, is, sure. it is the most cinema, which is my favorite genre. Um, yeah. But well, uh, he, he doesn't really yeah. do it again. I mean, maybe I never saw Valerian. Is Valerian really that good?
0: Valerian's insane. Did you? Were you? <laughs> <laughs> Was that? He's a great
1: movie.
0: I I know you guys will never do Basan on your podcast because, you know, let's not shine a light on a guy who's obviously problematic. But it would be a very interesting miniseries for you guys to do.
3: Uh, Yeah, I think at this point he's pretty much off the table for us. He's always been tough for us because... There's this chunk of shit in the middle that you would like. Do you compress? Do you like try and do them really fast or something if you're approaching him as a filmography? But now it's also just like, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: well, David, thank you so much for coming on. We really, really appreciate it. Um, This was a blast.
3: Yeah, it's the best. Uh, Of course. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. It's fun. It's always fun.